Hello, welcome to You Don't Know Mojack. My name is Ryan. My name's Brent. And on this episode, we're discussing SST 259, the Descendants Sommary Comp. I think this is our third Descendants Comp, and why not? We love the Descendants, and uh, it never hurts to have a Descendants episode. Also love that we're doing this like on the heels of an all episode. Yeah. Never thought we'd be doing all and Descendants back to back. Good one, Brant. Yeah. And on this episode, we've got a special guest. Yeah, we've got Chris Sherry on the show. Very cool to have Chris on the show. Another piece of the Descendants All puzzle. Uh, longtime artist for the Descendants and All. And as you will hear in the interview, way, way more. So very cool to have Chris on the show. Big time. But first, Brent, why don't you hit me with some spiels? Okay, and, you know, full disclosure to everybody who's listening, if you came for the Chris Sherry, you might want to fast forward here. We, No. Well, don't. Um, don't, don't fast forward. Don't fast forward. But, okay. you know, we don't have a lot to talk about with some of these comps, so we might be front-loading with spiels, and, and that's definitely the case with me this week. Oh, boy. So settle in. Load it. Yeah. I think this is probably one of the positive outcomes of the pandemic. I'm sure we've talked about this, but it seems like everyone has a book coming out, and I just mm-hmm. love it. So uh, I've got a book report this week. If, you know, it's great that that's happening, but it's costing me a lot of money and I have <laughs> very, yes. very little free time. So it's kind of stressing me out having books pile up, but it's a good problem to have. Yeah, no doubt. I never feel guilty for buying books. To me, it's a sound investment. Also, I'll just say we occasionally get messages from our listeners asking if we have a list of our recommends anywhere. <laughs> That th- well, hey, hang on. Why would you say, everyone, fast forward if we also get people <laughs> saying, give us lists? Come on, man. And opinion is divided on the length of our spiels. I'll say that much. Okay. Yep. All right. Uh, so if you're looking for some book rem- recommends, grab your pen um, because there's some coming here and we do not have a list. And this will also double as at least the reading section of the Mojack Holiday Gift Guide for me. Oh, nice. Okay? So it's... You want your wife to hear this as well, then? No, because I have all of these already. (laughs) (laughs) All right. I would just refer her to my Amazon wish list. Okay. Yep. (laughs) Okay, so it's an overdue read for me because it's been out for like six months or more now. Uh, But Jim Rulin's new fiction novel, Make It Stop, Mm. uh, was one of the best things I've read all year, to be honest with you. Now, I read nonfiction 10 to 1. To fiction, so I'm yeah. I'm pretty fussy when it comes to to fiction. Yeah. Our listeners, of course, know Jim from his book Corporate Rock Sucks, The Rise and Fall of SST Records, along with his books on Bad Religion and Keith Morris. Because this is fiction, I'm not going to get too into the plot, but I'll just give you the blurb: a speculative tale of dysfunctional vigilantes, sex crazed junkies, and corporate healthcare run amok. I already knew Jim was a remarkable writer, but it really hit home with this novel. I honestly couldn't put it down. I'll, I'll definitely be checking out his other fictional novels, Forest of Fortune, along with his short story collection, Big Lonesome. Another book that I saw in my local bookstore for cheap, so I took a chance on it, is Jesse Dayton's memoir, Bow Monster. Jesse is a guitarist and frontman from Beaumont, Texas, hence the title, Bow Monster. Now, until reading this book, I was completely unfamiliar with his music, which ranges from rockabilly to more honky-tonk country and country rock. He was kind of ground floor, I would say, in like the Roots revival, like outlaw country revival, alt country, whatever you want to call it. Oh, okay. Yeah. Like so, in 
like in late 90s type thing. More like mid 90s. Yep. Okay. Not late 90s, mid 90s. Yep. Got it. Keep yep. going. Good correction. <laughs> uh, he's also an in demand session player, uh, touring musician, musician, and that's what piqued my interest. He ended up meeting Chris Christopherson in the 90s. Uh, and wound up playing on late career albums by Johnny Cash, Willie Nelson, Waylon Jennings. Of course, he's much younger than all of these people. Uh, he, in his book, he's got a thousand amazing stories about jamming with or hanging out with all of these legends like Merle Haggard, Doug Somm, Lefty Frizzell. He's played on albums with Shooter Jennings, Duff McKagan, Ray Price, Glenn Campbell, on and on. He's played with Mike Ness and toured with Social Distortion. He stood in on tours for Billy Zoom with X and played in John Doe's solo band. He played guitar on the Super Suckers Must Have Been High album and toured the world with the Super Suckers. Um, and believe me, the stories he tells confirms that they were indeed the world's most dangerous band for a while. Mm. He worked with Rob Zombie and has been in some of his movies, both on screen and on, on soundtracks, which led him to writing his own scripts and directing his own films, starring people like Malcolm McDowell, Sid Haig, Corey, Corey Feldman. He's had quite the life, and I thoroughly enjoyed his book. Yeah, that sounds cool. And Must Have Been High might be my last Super Suckers record that I go back to. Mm -hmm. Yeah, same. Okay, now here's the fun part. My next 10. Are you ready, Ryan? Oh, okay. <laughs> and this is just the stuff of interest possibly to people who listen to our show. I'm not even getting into all the non-Mojack-related books that are piling up like history, film books, stuff on organized labor, politics, all of that. Okay? Wow. So I'm booked. Pun intended. Yeah. Okay. It's the truth. Making the Only Ones by Simon oh. Wright, 2023. Wow. 2023 Shakespeare Editorial. That's the, the publisher. His first book on music. He's written other books, but um, not on music. It claims to tell the story of making the self-titled album by the only ones. Three quarters of the band, John Perry, Alan Mayer, and Peter Parrott, are, are all interviewed for this. Unfortunately, drummer Mike Kelly passed away in 2017. Wow, I didn't know about that one. That is on my list right now. Yeah. All right, you've probably seen this one, Ryan. Conform to Deform, The Weird and Wonderful World of Some Bazaar by Wesley Doyle, 2023, Jawbone Press. I know virtually nothing about the Some Bazaar label, but I aim to fix that by reading this book. Bands like uh, Neubotten, Fetus, Swans, Coil, Mark Almond, Psychic TV, Cabaret Voltaire, Many, many more. Sounds like a wild story, and I know some of those artists, but I, I don't, there's many I don't know, so I, I figure I'll get hit, hip to some new tunes as I read this Some Bizarre book. Yeah, that's actually a new one for me. Yeah. A lot of those bands are not typically up my alley, but i definitely read that book. Mm -hmm. Okay, here's one that is probably up your alley, Ryan, and I feel like we've maybe talked about this one already. Mm-hmm. Play Like a Man, My oh, Life yeah. in Poster Children by Rose Marshak, 2023, University of Illinois Press. Yeah. The Great Champagne, Illinois Band. I know you've been a fan for a while. They weren't really on my radar until our podcast pals at Lotus Pool Records sent us a package a few years ago. Yeah, man. It says on the back cover they played over 800 shows on tour and Rose kept journals. So I bet this is full of a who's who of 80s and 90s indie rock and punk rock 
So many of these types of books are by dudes, too, so cool to hear a woman's experience. Yeah, agreed. Okay, speaking of women's perspectives on playing music, Hit Girls, Women of Punk in the USA, 1975-1983 to by Jen B. Larson, 2023, Feral House. The layout kind of reminds me of that book on that book, Disturbing the Peace, on Four One Five Records, in mm. the in the sense that it's broken up into shortish chapters on each band, and these aren't all women bands, but more bands with prominent female members, and it goes by region and scene. So just a few of the names I pulled out just to give you an idea of of who's in here: uh, groups like Pylon, Algebra Suicide has a chapter in here, Ryan. Mm. The Dish Rags, Sado Nation, Controllers, Sin 34, Screaming Sirens, Avengers, Frightwig, Bush Tetras, hundreds more. Again, definitely some new stuff for me here to dive into also. Yeah, I actually didn't know about that book either. And what an interesting era, 75 to 83. Mm-hmm. Like, wow. Yeah. Next up, Ryan. I Want You Around. The Ramones and the Making of Rock and Roll High School <laughs> by S- Stephen B. Armstrong, 2023, Backbeat Books. Written for Brandt. Yeah, it is exactly what it says in the title, uh, with interviews by Riff Randall herself, PJ Souls, director Alan Arkush, Monty Melnick, uh, Roger Corman, the producer, and many, many others involved in the making of a film that I've seen 30 times at least. I can't wait, wait to dig into this book. Yeah. Okay, five more, Ryan, and they're all on the tree. Well, I bet you some of those ones you've mentioned already are, and you, we just don't know it yet. For sure. Yeah. Uh, okay, technically I don't have this one yet, but it should be in my mailbox by the time this episode <laughs> posts. <laughs> the greatest band that ever wasn't. The story of the roughest, toughest, most hell-raising band to ever come out of the Northwest, The Screaming Trees. Yeah. A comedy tragedy in three acts. 2023 Sonata Books by Barrett Martin. Now, as we all know, Barrett didn't play on any of the SST era albums, so we'll see how deep he goes into the SST era. Um, there's also apparently an audiobook version narrated by Barrett that is, I don't think it's out yet. I, I looked, um, but it is coming out, so if you're into that, you can check that out. It says on the write up for the book, it says there's three acts. And each act features 11 short stories for a total of 33 stories about the Screaming Trees. So I'm very curious to check that out. Yeah. Yeah, we mentioned that a few episodes back, but it was great to see that there was an opportunity to order it outside of the U.S. That's that's recent, and I, uh, I ordered it probably at the same instant you did when I saw that. Yep. Okay, next up. A Walk Across Dirty Water and Straight into Murderer's Row, a memoir by Mm. Eugene S. Robinson, primarily known as the frontman for Oxbow, whose uh, one and only release on SST we'll be getting to in like 80 episodes or so. He was also in the short-lived group Blackface with Chuck the Duke. Uh, This dude can write. He's written other books on fighting. Um, He's a black belt in Brazilian jiu-jitsu. I've never read any of those because I'm just not interested in... MMA, but uh, also lots of other uh, magazine articles, websites, newspapers like the LA Times, New York Times. You know it's going to be a wild ride. Yeah. Okay. 
Sonic Life, a memoir, 2023 double day books by Thurston Moore. To say I've yeah. been eagerly anticipating this one would be an understatement. Um, it's massive, 460-ish pages, tons of photos, flipping through the table of contents, and the chapter titles are pure Thurston. Uh, chapter titles like Jack from Sonic Matrix, Chaos is the Future. Mm-hmm. This is a chapter title. Shake, throb, thrash, switch, stroke, sweep, slam, brush. Uh, there's a chapter called What Makes a Man Start Fires. Yeah. Mine arrived in the mail. I'm going to read that right after this Kids in the Hall book I'm reading. Yeah. That, that one's next. I'm super pumped about that. All, not just because of the Sonic Youth, the SS Tree, the American Indie Underground, but also about record collecting. I hope that Thurston goes into that too. Yeah, I bet he does. Okay. Here's a recommend, Ryan, but it's not for you. inside the skunk works machine bruce dickinson's most mysterious musical project 1994 to 1996 by chris dale and friends 2022 independently published okay so in the 90s a lot of metal artists that wanted to stay relevant or you know 80s hard rock bands had a few different options at least that's how it seemed to to many at the time almost none of them (laughs) you know, uh, maintained their, their sound from the eighties. They, they all tried to switch it up. Uh, you, you know, a few options that bands felt like they had was, uh, to go in more of a nine inch nails ministry direction, like faster pussycat, for example, and wasp tried to do new metal. Yep. Or they could try and go in like a heavier groove metal direction, like Pantera. Mm-hmm. Like Rob Halford tried with Fight or Anthrax did when they ditched Joey Belladonna and brought in John Bush. Or they could try and go grunge, quote, which is what many of them did. Kiss released Carnival of Souls, which sounds exactly like Alice in Chains. Warrant has this album from 1995 called Ultraphobic, which is just hilarious. The title track is such a blatant ripoff of Smells Like Teen Spirit. It's hilarious. The irony, irony here being like, a lot of these bands like Pantera and Alice in Chains were like glam metal bands in the 80s. Early on, for yep. sure. Uh, didn't Motley Crue do some sort of industrial album too, right? It wasn't industrial. They just cut their hair and ditched the spandex and spent every all their time in every interview talking about their punk roots and things like that. You know, okay. Most changed out their singer for somebody, you know, a little less flamboyant, right? But yeah, no, they didn't make an industrial album. Uh, so, okay, so Bruce Dickinson left Iron Maiden and formed the solo band Skunk Works in the 90s. He went to Seattle to make a grunge album engineered by Jack and Dino. Wow. This book tells the entire sordid story, tons of photos, the full story of the insane Sarajevo concert. They played a, famously played a, a concert in Sarajevo in 1994 when it was like an active war zone. There's a whole documentary about that. Um, Bruce Dickinson is like an, been made an honorary resident because of, of it. Sarajevo. Yeah. They had to like smuggle the band in and shit like that. Wow. Um, and Jack is interviewed for this book, Jack and Dino. So, and all of the band and all of the crew. So that's that one. Did that album come out? Oh yeah. Skunk yeah. Works. Yeah. And? Ah, uh, it's, I like some of Bruce's solo stuff. That's not one that I go back to, but it's all right. 
Okay. Interesting. Yeah. I had no idea that that existed. Yeah. I, I prefer his albums, Accident of Birth or The Chemical Wedding. Everyone can tell now, like when I ask follow-up questions to Brandt, it's just so he can really, you know, <laughs> do a deep dive, you know. What about that Motley Crue industrial album? Actually, it wasn't an industrial yeah. album. Yeah. yeah, as if you really <laughs> give a shit, right? <laughs> is that 10? That's not no, 10, is it? one more. He- Keep going. Okay, last but not least, I recently spieled about Joe Carducci's excellent blog, The New Vulgate, and how he was teeing up a piece on Spot. More on that in a minute. So the new issue is out now, issue 161. It's amazing. While Don Lewis, the photographer, and Des Kadena have a piece on Robert Becerra of The Stains, who recently passed. Dave Chandler of Vitus has a piece on Mark Adams, the bass player, uh, who also passed recently. And then Joe has this absolutely epic piece on, on the Spotinator. It truly goes through everything, all of the SST years, all of the records he worked on, everything else he worked on post-SST, his own music, his photography, all of it. Sounds like Joe has all of Spot's journals and tons of unpublished photos, many of bands. Like he didn't do a photo book of his his band photography. Um, Joe suggests there's at least a few books he intends to publish out of all of it, uh, which will no doubt be amazing. So, okay, get this. I did not know a thing about this until I read about it in Joe's piece. But in 2010, Spot started writing a novel called Decline and Fall of Alternative Civilization under the pen name G.S. Oldman. After hearing, you know, the pitfalls and challenges of self-publishing from Joe, he decided to publish it himself as an ebook only. And when that didn't take off kind of as, as he had hoped it would, he created an audio version, which Joe describes as sort of a, a radio drama. Spot narrates it and his friends act out all of the characters. It's a story about a girl in a rock band. Joe kind of suggests that it draws some parallels between um, Spot's time touring with Black Flag, maybe a little bit in the early 80s. Mm-hmm. Um, the lead character is voiced by Janet Housden. So I bought the audio version. It's 10 hours long. I haven't started yet. Started yet. I just got it. Um, so stay tuned. I'll report back. And that's my next 10, Ryan. And I'll, I didn't include it, though, uh, because we've already discussed it on a show, but I'll just give you a quick bonus. Uh, I grabbed a copy of this. The big, oh, yeah. The Big Midweek, Life Inside the Fall by Steve Hanley and Olivia Pekarski, 2014 Route Publishing. So that's good. That's on the list too. Yeah, you'll enjoy that. That's it. That's all you got? That's all I got. Awesome. So as usual, completely unplanned, I've got a total overlap with your spiel that you just did because my spiel is about spot. But it, it has a huge tie-in with the show. And I've got some spiels and, and some nugs later on that relate to Spot when we get into the Descendants. But I took your recommend and I went and read Joe's new Vulgate blog as soon as it was up. So this spiel isn't just on the SS tree. It's really about one of the SS tree roots, Glenn Lockett, otherwise known as Spot. The fact that Brant recommended it a couple of weeks ago and that he and I are in an unplanned manner having it as both of our spiels this week just tells you how amazing it is. Um, but what occurred to me when I was reading it is that, you know, we always talk about Spot, the recording engineer, the producer, 
and in fact, Spot is all over this Somery release that we'll get into in the history lesson um, when we go through this Descendants record. To a lesser extent, we talk about Spot the Photographer, and we've mentioned his two books before, Sound of Two Eyes Opening and Anti-Punk Rock. And, and even to a lesser extent, we talk about Spot the Writer. And then even to a further lesser extent, we, we talk about Spot the Musician. But that's what I want to talk about is Spot the Musician because coinciding with the new Vulgate issue coming out, I actually got a Spot record. And just randomly, it all happened kind of at the same time. Now, we've mentioned Spot and his Artless Entanglements proj before in the past. There are songs on the Cracks in the Sidewalk comp. That's New Alliance 1 from 1980, and we also covered it on SST92. He's also, as Artless Entanglements, on the Chunks comp, New Alliance 3 from 1981, SST69. Uh, we also would have mentioned Spot playing on the Nig Heist LP from 84 on Thermidor and the single from Thermidor in 82, put out on Joe Carducci's uh, label, Thermidor. But I've never really dug into Spot the Musician. And I think it's because I've only ever really acquired two singles by Spot over the years. And they didn't really grab me, honestly. I had acquired the Yo Marry Me Kaka Bodin Popo Pipi single from 1992. That sounds like no- a chapter in Thurston's book. I know. <laughs> it's, it's on the No Auditions label, which is Spot's label. And we have mentioned the No Auditions label in the past when we've talked about the amazing Kamikaze Refrigerators band on the show. Um, They have a record on No Auditions from 86. Uh, That band is from Austin. And then the other single that I had by Spot is called Two Eyes to Crack. It's a single-sided 7-inch that was a bonus single when you ordered the Sounds of Two Eyes opening book direct, which I did. So I had two singles by Spot. And I listened to them and I kind of went, eh, like not the greatest. But again, a couple of things kind of happened in the last few weeks is I read the new Vulgate article on your recommend and I randomly picked up this other record by Spot recently and it's called Picking Up Where I Left Off. And so this one is from 1987 on no additions and I love it. Um, Now, all the spot records mostly have spot playing all the instruments, but I had like, just check this out. Okay. It's recorded at spinhead mastered by John golden. You just mentioned Janet Housden, Janet Housden's on drums on some tracks, uh, who of course is from the love dolls and red cross art by Frank Kozik. I just love it. Don't get me wrong. Spot is not the best singer. I'm not going to lie, but his vocals totally fit this music, um, which I am coming to learn is is where kind of spot went to over the years he kind of developed a total roots bluegrass celtic vibe and he's an amazing picker you kind of know about spot as like a clarinet and a banjo player Mm -hmm. but he's so much more right um mandolin guitar just awesome it's a great record and it was a really unexpected surprise um, I remember I sent you a picture of this record when I got it, and it was a couple of weeks before New Vulgate. I hadn't listened to it. I listened to it at the same time. It was great. And so I said to myself, I want more Spot. So I went and grabbed this CD that Joe also mentions in his article called Unhalf Baking from 1999 on Upland Records. Also a great Roots Celtic Blues Bluegrass record. And I that's not 
these are not genres of music that I typically seek out. Yeah. Um, but Spot kind of gave me a bit of an entry point in this way. That, that's uh, the only one I have by Spot. On Half Baking? Yeah. Yeah, picking up where I left off, you would like as well too. Yeah. Very, very cool. Um, there is also an Artless Entanglements comp on No Additions from 1987. I had no idea that exists. Other releases on No Additions. There are some collaborations that Spot also did that Joe mentions in the article that seem pretty hard to track down. But Spot has some tunes up on Bandcamp that you should go and check out. I just want to re-recommend Joe's new Vulgate blog. It's really a detailed, caring tribute to a friend. Um, I had the same reaction that you did, Brant, when I uh, read it recently. Check out Spot, though, the musician. That was a mind blower for me, a great revelation. Now we're going to check out Spot, the engineer, here shortly in History Lesson Part 1 and 2. And like I mentioned, I've got some spiels from and referencing Spot in the history lessons related to the descendants, but definitely go check it out. Again, we know Spot the engineer, we know Spot the photographer, the writer. Check out Spot the musician. Yeah. Should we get into the summary release, Ryan? Let's do it. History lesson, part one. All right, Brant, I'm going to hit you with the descendants rundown. Oh boy. Now, make sure that I don't miss any, okay? <laughs> All right. So, these are the Descendants releases on SST that coincide with our episodes. And we started with the last Descendants album for a long time at SST 112, the All album, where we had Milo on as a guest. SST 142, Milo Goes to College, where we had Bill on. And Bill was also on SST 143, I Don't Want to Grow Up. SST 144 is Bonus Fat. SST 145 is Two Things at Once, where we had Mugger on. SST 163, the Liveage record where we had Stefan on. SST 205, Hallraker. SST 212, the Fat EP where we had Pat Howitt on. I was reminded of how cool that interview was. Mm -hmm. That's awesome. Yeah, wow, what an awesome interview. Uh, SST 242, the Enjoy record with Brian Probart. And here we are at SST 259 with Summary. But that's not all. Because, of course, we had, I just mentioned a moment ago, the Chunks comp, SST-69, and then SST-213, Program Annihilator 2 with, who was our guest? That would be Jim Ruland. Yeah, man, you just mentioned him. See? It all comes together. And then, I believe, this SST-259 summary comp, like I said, I think it's the third comp, if you count bonus fat and two things at once, and I think it's our second last appearance of the descendants if you count and i do sst 263 the duck and cover comp that we'll get to so i think that is like the, that's the descendant story on the you don't know mojack podcast this is the second last one so ryan this record was released in 1991 on cd double lp and cassette 28 tracks total three from the fat ep six from milo goes to college six from grow up six from enjoy and seven from the all record, total of 28 tracks. This episode might be a little bit of a bust in terms of discussing music we've we've already talked about, in some cases, like you said, multiple times when you factor yeah. in the comps. But this comp was hugely important. Although Descendants are big stars now, that I don't I would say that wasn't the case in 1991 when this came out. They weren't even an active band anymore. And at least where I lived, you couldn't just walk into a store down the street and pick up their entire discography. And, mm -hmm. and 
even if your local record store had it all, you likely couldn't afford it. So although there are some clear omissions from this comp, which we actually touch on a little bit in the interview and you and I have talked about at various points when we, you know, on the parent albums, this is one hell of a comp and I'm, I'm sure I've played this tape right here a thousand times or more. I am so used to hearing these songs in this order. Yeah. I haven't heard it in years. You know, I, I just, I don't go back to summary really that often. But as I listened to this tape this week, uh, I knew what song was coming next each time like a song ended. It's just so tattooed on my brain, this comp. Um, this this tape has been in multiple car stereos, several Walkmans. My basement bedroom faced the mini ramp in my backyard in, as a teenager. And we used to put the speakers up into, into my bedroom window and just blast this tape while we skated the ramp in my backyard. So I played this tape for the first time, I bet, in like 30 years, 30 plus years. But man, did it take me back listening to it this week. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's always been kind of a secondary comp to me to two things at once, but mm-hmm. that's, that's not because it's a, a bad comp. It's just due to when I got it and availability. Yeah. So Brent, you'll probably give a bit of a spiel about Chris in a minute here, but I wanted to pull a nug out of the, we got power book that mm-hmm. gives a bit of an early origin story of the band, but then also kind of ties into the the artwork of the band so a bit of a lead-in into chris if you will sure okay so out of the amazing book we got power by dave markey and jordan schwartz and this is again multiple tie-ins this is from the frank Nevetta and the descendants chapter written by joe carducci we've spoken about joe in the past we just spoke about uh joe's amazing tribute to spot on his new Vulgate blog. And so this chapter of course is no different. It's a total detail ridden tribute to an era of the descendants band and Frank in particular, but this is a great kickoff. I think getting into the artwork. Here we go. Here's Joe. Their second gig was on February 17th, 1979 at the San Pedro teen post with the plugs, the alley cats, black flag and the reactionaries. Good gig. It was Black Flag's second gig, too, and the first for the reactionaries. They soon morphed into the Minutemen. Dave, that's Dave Nolte, still sang for these first gigs, and then Descendants continued as a trio while looking for a lead singer. They played one show with a girl named Gwen Kahn singing on November 9, 1979. It's hard to believe they even knew a girl back then. One can't exaggerate the extent to which the descendants were uncool at school and put upon at home. Frank, Bill, and Pat, that's Pat McHouston, of course, uh, founder of All with Bill, the concept, that is. Frank, Bill, and Pat found solace on the ocean. They didn't fish like I thought of fishing on lakes in Wisconsin. They pulled heavy, commercially desirable fish out of the Pacific Ocean and sold them for cash. The kind that, if their classmates possessed, was simply given to them by rich parents. The band added Milo Ackerman on vocals in late 1980. Milo was a brainy, unhip kid. Later, while I was drawing the cover of the second album, after the style of the first, Bill told me that an old friend of theirs had drawn the cartoon of Milo on the first album. That was hardly true. 
Roger Deerline was actually a high school nemesis who had fixated on Milo to torment via cartoons and posters, some friend, and some balls for Bill and Milo then to make Roger reprise his caricature and thereby force it cool by his own hand on the cover of their classic album. The new four-piece Descendants recorded the Fat EP the following March with Spot at Music Lab in Silver Lake. Spot writes, it was definitely the bonus cup era. So the vibe in the room was pretty manic. So that's the germination of the Milo character right there. Right on, Ryan. Our guest this week probably needs no introduction to almost everyone listening to this, but I'll give one anyways. Chris is an illustrator and designer from Stockton, California, one of the most prolific punk artists on the planet. He's been the go-to artist for Descendants and all since 1991. He's also a high school drama teacher by day, which we get into in the interview. He's been in bands. He's seemingly friends with everyone. And when you hear this interview, you'll understand why. Should we toss it over to Chris? Yeah. All right. We're joined on the podcast today by Chris Sherry. Chris, thanks for being on the show. Thank you very much for asking me, Brant. All right. I want to go all the way back. Did you grow up in Germany? No, no, I did. I did live in Germany for a while. My dad was um, in the Air Force and um, we, he was in the Air Force for most of my my life. He mm. was in the Navy at the very, very first um, little bit. Uh, I got my start in in England. Um, my dad and my mom had had married, moved to London when when Vietnam was going on. And mm. so they he managed to miss out on on being involved in Vietnam because he was assigned to um, the the uh, embassy in London. And he was told to wear civilian clothes. So it's 19, you know, 67. He's living in London, swinging London um, with my mom. They just got married and he's wearing civilian clothes. He's not dressed as, you know, a, a, a Navy man at all. And um, they just had a, this great life. So my brother was born uh, and then I moved well, I got started in London, and then we wound up moving um, to Charleston, South Carolina, where I actually popped out. So mm. I was born in Charleston, South Carolina. We lived there for a little while, lived in upstate New York, um, moved to Germany when I was around three years old, uh, and then moved back to upstate New York, moved to Texas, moved to New Jersey, and then I did my high school years in England. Okay. Yeah, I knew you did high school in England. I I think you just answered the question why, obviously, uh, yeah. army brat or whatever you want to call it, moved around a lot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was, you know, Navy and then Air Force, but yeah. Air Force was, you know, the most, you know, the, the longest thing that my dad was involved with. So mm -hmm. we moved a lot. Yep. Uh, were your, either of your parents artists? You know, they weren't artists in the formal sense, um, but my dad, when he was first, you know, stationed in, in the Navy, um, had been doing drawings that were like, uh, you know, Ed Daddy, Ed Big Daddy Roth sort of mm -hmm. inspired things, and I had seen those as a really, really young kid. And my mom had um, had done a lot of drawings when she was in high school, and she did a lot of these these. Um, they were really unusual. They were these these profile images of women and and just a lot of like different cute outfits that she wanted to draw, but they were always in profile, which I I thought was really really interesting. It was kind of like, you know, like a a Greek pot, you know, like mm -hmm. everybody's in profile kind of doing their thing. Yeah. And so I remember seeing those as a kid and, and my mom kind of really pushed me into doing artwork um, because 
when we were in Germany, she she didn't speak German and um, she was at home and when my dad was at work and my brother was in kindergarten. So the, the two of us just sat around and just drew all day and she loved, you know, drawing. So it was really fun for her to have like a drawing buddy mm-hmm. who could just, you know, sit on the floor in the kitchen and call her while she was doing stuff. Right. Did you read comics? Oh, yeah. 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 That was that was, of course, my gateway into this junky existence that I now call my art career. Yeah, I I got started with Marvel Comics were really kind of like the main thing. And my dad worked in the motor pool uh, on the base. And so he was he was around mechanics and things like that. And in their downtime, they always had comic books laying around. And so, you know, they were young guys, too. So when when they would get done with their particular comics that they had been reading and just kind of passing around the motor pool, they gave them to my dad to bring home to me. And um, and I, I mean, I know it sounds crazy, but I still have some of those comic books that I got at like, you know, two, three years old. And they had a huge, huge impact on me. And, you know, between that and and cartoons. I really kind of decided I, I really like artwork and and I want to do something with that. Mm-hmm. Did you make your own comics? Not my own comics, but I, I did um, make these little paper dolls. So um, I, I would, we didn't have any money, you right. know, yeah. never had money growing up. So I would just on, you know, like um, we used to have note cards that had a, a rainbow color to them. So there were some of them that were red and some that were yellow and some that were orange or whatever. So I'd draw like the little body on the orange one and then I'd cut out their costume colors from the other ones and then tape them on. And so I had these little paper dolls that I played with as a kid. And so while I wasn't making comic books, I I had these little paper characters that I would play with because we were too poor to afford anything else. So those those are my toys, you know, and it's kind of <laughs> pathetic, but uh, that's what I had, you know, and it was just my imagination. So, yeah. Was skateboarding your entry point into punk rock or the other way around? Um, you know, that's that's kind of an interesting question because um I my got my first like skateboard, like proper I mean, I had, you know, like a a, a plastic yeah. little one, you know, little but cruiser. a real skateboard. <laughs> but my first real one was was probably when I was living in New Jersey. And um I got it around about the same time that I had seen Devo's video for I don't think it was through being cool. What what's the video? I, I keep forgetting the the video that um maybe it's freedom of choice. I, I think was going to say of freedom of choice or gates of yeah. steel or something like that. Yeah. Yeah, freedom of choice was probably the the first that I had seen like skaters skating like professionally like in a pool. So and, many people say that yeah. about yeah. Well, and it was. I mean, yeah. it it was like it was just this revelation to me. And I had this the I think it was a Sims wooden skateboard, and I was like, okay, this is kind of cool. This is similar to what they had. And then my first real proper skateboard was an agent orange on vision board oh wow got that it was like yes i had fully embraced like punk rock and skateboarding but the funny thing was is while i was like really interested in like you know seeing what what was in that devo video and i was heavily heavily into devo in my mind devo were were new wave Mm -hmm. at that particular time 
you know, it was, it was probably, you know, like 82, 83. And, um, you know, I, I was very defensive about that. I was like, no, Devo's new wave. And, and I, I'm into new wave. I'm not into punk. Cause I, <laughs> I thought that, you know, of course, punkers, you know, slashed each other with razor blades and things right. like that. I didn't want that. So, um, you know, I, I just thought of myself as this little new wave kid. And then I got <laughs> moved to England and, um, and while I'm staring at a generation X record right now. And then Billy Idol became my gateway mm -hmm. because, Dancing with Myself had come out, yeah. and I I loved it. And then I went, oh, he was in a band called Generation X. And then we moved to to England, and I found those Generation X albums, and um, you know, all of the the Clash albums that had come out prior to Combat Rock. And um, man, I was that was it. Freshman year of high school, there was no turning back for me. Hmm. Being from North America, I really view skateboarding through that lens. What was the skate culture like? for you in high school in England? Virtually non-existent. Mm -hmm. um, you know, in England, the the streets are not, they're, they're not made for street skating. Right, so yeah. you kind of had to go somewhere to skate. And in the mid eighties, you know, it had pretty much run its course in England. And of course that was getting ready to change in the, in the mid to late eighties. But, um, you know, you really couldn't street skate very much at all. And you had to go to a ramp when you had to find a ramp, you had to find a bowl or whatever. And so it was difficult to find those things. But in one of the little seaside communities that was close to us, um, Ipswich, they had a bowl and they had a half pipe. And, um, so it, I mean, it was an old skate park that was from the seventies. So we would go there and we, you know, befriended all the English kids that would go there. And that's, that's how I wound up meeting, you know, the band, the stupids mm -hmm. who then became, you know, like the, the flag bearers for, for skate punk in England. And, um, it was a very, very small tight knit community. That's, that's really where that came from. And then of course, as skating started to get bigger while I was in high school, the kids who were, you know, from texas or from virginia beach or from california moved to my base and some of them skated and so then suddenly we we had this population that was growing and it was uh it was pretty cool you know because we had the base to skate on yeah i was and gonna that, ask if you could if that was allowed <laughs> well i mean it wasn't necessarily allowed but we we could do that yeah. and you know there were loading docks and things like that that we could skate on and generally speaking the the pavement was far better than the pavement that existed around the english towns right. i mean it was awful i mean there were places where it was still cobblestone and you, you can't skate on that i mean there's just, there's no getting around it um but london you know just had um a wealth of great places to go as uh, you know apart from just being able to skate in the tube stations like that was pretty wild is you know just getting your skateboard and just you know, bombing down the tube station, just, you know, seeing people frightened and jumping out of your way. Yeah, no kidding. What about like the British bands of the era, like say the Exploited or Crass was maybe a little bit before your time. Did you, did you see any of that stuff? No, I didn't. Um, and, and to be really honest, a lot of like what was going on in England in the, you know, like 83, 84 didn't really interest me all that much. Um, because in Ipswich, they they have this this uh, post office and uh, a corn exchange. They were right next to each other in downtown Ipswich, and on the steps of the post office, you know the the punkers in town would just hang out, and you know they just drink their woodpecker cider, and you know just kind of cause a ruckus, yeah. but they didn't do anything. And I just kind of like saw them as like they looked cool, but you know they were just they were just kind of like these lazy people that didn't really seem 
you know, like they actually did anything. And so I didn't have a whole lot of interest in what they were up to, you know, and, and looking at their jackets and seeing anti-pasti and, and the exploited and GBH, I, I kind of saw that as like, those are bands I don't necessarily want to associate with. Obviously I've, I've, you know, grown to love them, but at the time, like that, that whole UK 82 stuff just had zero appeal to me. I liked the really early, you know, punk stuff from like 77. And then I started to get into hardcore and then all of that UK 82 stuff seemed very irrelevant to me. It just mm-hmm. didn't, it didn't have any interest to me at all. Yeah. What about making zines? Did you, were you into zine culture at all? I did. Yeah. I got into that. And that, that was also through the stupids. Mm-hmm. So um, the all, I think all of the guys in the stupids had, had made their own fanzines and um, Ed shred who was, he became a guitar player for the stupids, but he was um he was friends with the band when I had first met them. He wasn't in the band at the time. He had done a zine called um uh Skate City Tribune or yeah, Skate City Tribune. And uh I had gotten that. It was a it was a half size one, you know, where the, the pages right. were just yep. <laughs> and I thought that was the coolest thing ever. Yeah. So um I did my own zine, of course, you know, to to mimic what Ed had done. And I thought zines were awesome. And um, I realized really quickly that through doing zines, I could be contributing to something and I could start getting mail. And like getting mail was like the lifeblood of like the mid 80s, you know, hardcore community. And um, it got me connected with people literally around the globe. You know, there were people in Australia I was writing to Mm -hmm. all throughout Europe and then in the United States too. And, And keep in mind, I was living in England at the time. But the cool thing was, is that being in England on an Air Force base meant that my my mailing address was New York. Mm. It was APO New York, Air Post Office New York. And so I could order things from the States and I would only have to pay for the shipping from wherever it was coming from to New York. Oh, wow. And the military <laughs> took care of the rest of the bill. Right. Because of that. You know, I could order any of you know, the new Discord releases and get them, and I, I wasn't paying crazy. And you know in Canada, like, yep. how ridiculous <laughs> the, the postage is. It is, yep. We've ranted so, on it many, ranted about it many times. Oh, yeah. No, I know. I know. And, um, and so that was actually, that was huge because I had that APO address in New York. I was able to not only get things for myself, but... Tom, the drummer for the drummer and singer for the stupids, um, Tom would go out during um the summers and he would stay in in DC and then he was living in Pomona, California for for a while during uh one summer where he was working at Toxic Shock Records. Toxic Shock was this mecca, like one of the most brilliant record stores in Southern California, and they had this great zine catalog. And with the, well, like the the best, like most crazy artwork on it, Vince Rancid did artwork for it, and um, uh, Zeno did artwork for it. But it was this beautiful fanzine that had you know all the labels and whatever they had. So since Tom was working at at uh, Toxic Shock in Pomona, he bought all these records one summer, like four or five boxes worth, and said, "Hey, can I mail them to your APO address?" Mm-hmm. Because it, it won't be as expensive. And I said, sure, no problem. And he said, but don't worry. You can open up the boxes and tape whatever you want. Wow. <laughs> so there were like three or 400 records that came to my house that Tom had bought while living in the States, working at Toxic Shock Records, that I suddenly just had access to. <laughs> and I virtually everything that came on in. So 
like it was it was incredible having you know like the ability to do that and like having the good fortune of knowing tom and his connection through toxic shock was it was massive i mean it got me exposed to so many bands i would never have heard of so i kind of had this really exhaustive understanding and knowledge of of hardcore and punk rock music and releases you know up to like 87 i mean like i kind of heard it all wow were you involved in theater at all in high school? Yeah. No. No. no, which is funny because like, and I laugh about it because like my theater teacher in high school um, and I did not get along and I, you know, and I really didn't have any act, you know, interest in acting or being on stage and, or anything like that. You know, I wound up stumbling into it later in life here. And, you know, I've been teaching, you know, drama now for 21 years, but I had zero interest in it in high school, like none whatsoever. I just, I, I, all I was really interested in was music and skating and artwork. That was it. Mm -hmm. Nothing else. Okay. Well, put a pin in that because I want to learn more about your <laughs> uh, teaching career in a bit here. What about gig flyers? Were you doing that at all? Not at the time. Um, mainly because I didn't really know too much about the gigs that were going on. There, there were shows going on in Ipswich. And um, Extreme Noise Terror was mm. from Ipswich. And, um, you know, obviously they became like this this huge cult band of, you know, the whole grindcore or whatever you want to call yep. it scene. But they were they were from Ipswich. And, and, you know, I would see those guys around and, you know, they just looked like everybody else that hung out on the steps of the post office in Ipswich. And I didn't really think, you know, anything of it. In fact, we had recorded... I had a band in high school and we had recorded there was some loose association with extreme noise terror it was either one of the guys studio or they had recorded stuff at the same place that we had recorded i don't remember what it was but they were they were happening and i just had no knowledge of it at all um i see the stupids from time to time and i'd go to london to see shows but but not so much like small gigs that i was you know had any I mean, I didn't even know how to do flyers. Like, how, I was just a stupid kid in high school. Like, I didn't know, like, that I could contact somebody in the band or right. a promoter. Like, who's even a promoter? Like, I don't know any of that stuff. So I didn't do any of that because I, I simply didn't know. I was just very ignorant. You were the singer in this band? <laughs> yeah. And I'm going to use air quotes. Yeah. I was the singer in the band. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I think I was the guy who wasn't afraid to make an idiot of myself on stage. And I had zero musical ability, so I think by default I became the singer. Hmm. What was the I band mean, called? I, well, in high school it was Evil Knievel Rice. Okay, I thought that came later, but that no, was... that was high school. Yeah, that was high school. Okay, but the, some of that band's material has been released way later on. <laughs> it has, yeah, surprisingly, okay. it has. Any notable shows with Evil Knievel Rice? So we never played, oh, you know, yeah. when I was in high school, we never played. Cause again, how do you get in touch with promoters? Like, right. how do you play the show? How does that happen? I had no understanding of that at all. But what did happen was we had recorded just a bunch of stuff in, in, uh, <laughs> in retrospect, it seems ridiculous that this happened, but our, our history teacher would give us the keys to the high school and say, you can practice in my room. Wow. He, I mean, he gave us the keys, which now is like, I would never give my yeah. keys to for anything. But he was very trusting and he gave us the keys. And so we'd go in and we'd record stuff in his room. 
And so we had all these demos that we had made, you know, just from a beatbox, you know, and, and um, we just record them and whatever. And so while we were recording and just doing all this stuff, we did a, a joke rap song in the style of the Beastie Boys. Hmm. So when we called the, the Ricey Boys, because it was Evil Evil Rice and Ricey Boys, we thought it was funny. So um, we did this stupid rap and um, somebody had heard it and and had one of the one of the GIs on the base had heard it and said, "Hey, I'm putting together this um, this rap concert in Ipswich, and I was interested if you guys would want to play." And we were like, "Well, we're we're a hardcore band. Right. Like, if we play, like the, the people are going to want to kill us." And <laughs> and he said, "Well, aren't you guys a rap band?" And I was like, "No." but we'll play. Yeah. And we were just so stupid. We just, we agreed to play this thing and we kept going back and forth. Like, do we play as this hardcore band or, right. you know, do we actually learn, you know, some raps? Do we actually, you know, learn enough material to like have a 15 minute set? And we thought, okay, we can probably do that. That's not too hard. Right. So we did, we, we made up all these raps and um, we decided, <laughs> all right, we're going to go on as, as the, um, the deaf city boys. Okay. Yeah. And, um, so we got a, a friend of ours who, um, you know, knew uh, a DJ and he said, well, we got this guy, he'll he'll DJ and, and you just rap over the beats. It'll be easy. And we figured, OK, we're in pretty good because this friend of ours, Brian Thomas, was involved in, in the rap scene in Ipswich. And he, he I think his mom was Jamaican. So he had all these connections with the Jamaican population in Ipswich. And we thought, well, that's cool. Like, we'll get all these guys that'll come on out. They know Brian, so they'll want to be there and they'll be supportive of us. And they'll just think we're just these crazy white kids and we'll probably get away with it. Yeah. That sounds pretty fun. <laughs> so we agreed to do it. And, um, Brian got super, keep in mind, he's in high school. Brian gets super drunk beforehand. And um, we then get on stage and we're actually going to be, you know, performing and doing this thing. And um, there was one microphone. So we had to literally pass the mic, like the Beastie Boys said yeah, about. Yeah. We're literally passing the mic back and forth and and rapping and, and doing the thing. And um, it's, it's not going very well. But at some point, Brian decides he's not going to let anybody else have the microphone. And he just keeps repeating himself over and over and over again. So him and our guitar player start kind of getting in a scuffle over the microphone. And then the next thing I know, punches are flying. And then all of these Jamaican relatives of Brian's start storming the stage while we're attempting to, you know, keep this rap thing going. Right. And um, so this huge brawl ba breaks out with, with all of these you know, Jamaican relatives who are adults and they're, they're beating up, you know, these high school kids and they're just, and at one point I see our guitar player, the, I think it's Brian's mom has him by the hair and is slamming his head down on the stage. And then a knife comes out, he gets stabbed. Whoa, whoa. And I mean, we, we then, I mean, it's, it seemed like a scene, scene out of the Beatles. Like we went out the back door and we're running down the streets from this and i later we find out that you know they were all gang members right. and, and dealers in this jamaican gang in, in ipswich and they're chasing us down the streets of ipswich with knives like you know they're they're wanting blood and um, it was wild and this was so, on base 
No, this oh. was this was Ipswich. This was actually out the Corn Exchange, which was next door to the post office. And um, so it was this wild event. And um, you know, that was the one time that that we played. And it wasn't even as our band. It was it was just this this thing that we kind of just did on a lark. Mm. And um, that was it. So anyway, flash forward to like nineteen. This is this. Keep in mind, this is nineteen eighty eight. Um, nineteen eighty four, maybe. All of all of the people who were in my band had moved to Denver, where I was living at the time. And, um, you know, we all thought, you know what? We're all together. Why don't we actually play a show? Yeah. So we did. Um, we played one show, and that was it. Why Denver? Why did you move there? Um, my dad, he, you know, um, three days after high school um, ended for me, he got assigned to Denver, Colorado. And before that, he was assigned to, um, I think, Houston. So we were going to be moving to Houston. And I was like, oh, cool. Houston would be really cool. Like, really red. You know, the punk band were from from Houston. And, you know, the yeah. big boys were from Austin. And the Butthole Surfers and the Offenders. And I thought, yeah, Texas seems like a great place to be. Okay, I'm stoked on that. And then really soon before we had to move, he said, oh, no, no, no we're going to Denver. And I just went, Denver? Like, what is, what's even going on in Denver? I had no idea. All I knew about Denver was that Maximum Rock and Roll had done a scene report. And one of the bands that was mentioned was a band called Endangered Feces. And I thought, <laughs> great, I'm going to be moving to a, to a city. And that is that, that's the claim to fame band of the Rocky Mountain region. Yeah. And then I, you know, I got there and I realized it was actually really cool. But he was just assigned um, to uh, Lowry Air Force Base in, in Denver. And, and we moved. Tell me about Evan O'Meara and blue moon recordings oh wow boy i don't i evan i i guess is who did it <laughs> you know honestly that's a name i i have very vague recollections of um blue moon put out our split single my band sizewell and and this great denver band the amirs um but he put that out in i don't I don't know. You probably know better than I do. Um, late nineties. I, I assumed you were involved with blue moon. No, no, no. I knew nothing about it. I was just like, we, we were so stupid. We had like no <laughs> desire to like do anything right or anything. And somebody our one of our guitar players just said, Hey, somebody wants to put out a record. And I went, okay, that's fine. <laughs> I guess we could do that. And so we did. And honestly, you could tell me this is Evan. He did Blue Moon Records. And I'd just go, all right, <laughs> I believe you. Okay. I have no recollection whatsoever. Is Denver where you met Dave Nasworthy? Um, Denver, it, well, I, I actually met Dave Nasworthy in, in Fort Worth, Texas uh, in the summer of 1989. I was getting ready to to go to college and um I was visiting the drummer for for our band Evil Knievel Rice. Actually all of the band Evil Knievel Rice met up in the summer of 89 in Fort Worth where our drummer was living and um we were hanging out and you know we were there for like I think a week and it just so happened that that weekend um the chemical people were playing in Dallas or in yeah I think they were playing in in Dallas. So um, we went to the show and that was the first I had seen the chemical people. And of course, I absolutely just fell head over heels for the band. I mean, they were just incredible. And um, the funny thing about the show was Dave and I had just kind of very briefly had just said, hey, how you doing? Whatever. Um, but that show is is very noteworthy in that at the end of the night, 
like this entourage of of people showed up that clearly did not belong in the punk club and um one of them said uh hey i'm a rapper you know can you guys you guys had some pretty cool beats could you could you guys maybe like you know lay down some beats for me and i could i could rap over it we went yeah i guess so sure why not so they did and this this guy gets up and starts rapping and um very soon afterwards we find out oh that was vanilla ice oh, wow. and this is this is pre you know ice ice baby i mean this was i mean and it's there's a video of it floating around somewhere oh, wow. but that was, that was the show and I, I remember just going that was really weird like what just happened here um so anyway um but dave and i had very very briefly briefly met and then i i left i went back to denver and then I started going to college that fall because this was the end of the summer. And um, I, I loved the band so much. I did some artwork for them and just sent it to them. I just said, hey, you know, if you're, if you're interested and you'd like to use this, here's some things. And um, I didn't hear anything back for a while. So I kind of thought, oh, man, well, I guess he didn't like it. And then I wind up getting this huge box full of T-shirts. And he just made tour shirts with some of the artwork that I sent. Wow. And I was like, whoa, that was that was pretty cool. And so then, you know, Dave would, would do shirts of virtually anything that I did. I mean, he was a big fan of me and I was a huge fan of his band and, and him. And, um, we just became great, great friends and, uh, you know, still to this day, in fact, you know, I saw him last weekend. Hmm. Uh, um, how did you end up working with this group, the libido boys? Okay. So that, uh, man, you, you've done your homework. Good for you. <laughs> um, the libido boys was, um, winter of 1988. It was the first first year I was living in Denver. Um, I was getting ready to go to um, England. I was getting ready to go back. And um, well, because when high school ended, I joined the Stupids. And my plan like was a, like as a as a member of the band. Oh, yeah. I was the singer for the Stupids. Oh, OK. Yeah. So Ed was leaving the band and um, and Tom didn't want to sing anymore. Mm. And so he invited me while he was recording our, our Evil Knievel Rice single in London. Um, he invited me to join the band. And I said, uh, sure, that sounds good. So my plan was help my parents move into Denver and then move back to London. And then there was a tour booked for Australia and Japan and Europe. And so I was just going to just be in the stupids. And mm -hmm. so um, I helped my parents move. And I, I wasn't hearing anything from Tom and, you know, I was kind of wondering what's going on here. So the winter of 88, I, I went back to try and see what was going on. But before then, the Libido Boys had come through Denver and had played. And at the time, they didn't, I don't even think they had out their first single. They might have had the first single, but they were touring uh, and they were from Mankato, Minnesota. And they came through and they were they were incredible. Like their, their early shows were very much like, you know, SNFU. Mm -hmm. So they they very much took a big, big um, cue from SNFU and all. And so I heard them and it was like, oh, my gosh, these guys are incredible. So again, that night, I immediately did four drawings for the band. I stayed up till probably four in the morning, did several drawings for the band, sent them to them. And then, you know, they, they said, okay, can we use this for some t-shirts? And yeah. it kind of went from there. And so right after graduation of high school, like my art career, career with air quotes yeah. really, you know, started because I was starting to see bands and, you know, I was very very eager to approach bands and, and just say, Hey, I draw pretty good. You know, if you guys need anything, I'd, I'd love to do something for you. And mm. a lot of them agreed. 
Did you see the descendants before, like on or before the final tour, or did you see all first? Yeah, I saw all first, yeah. and um, and that was just dumb luck because living in England meant if a band came over, I had a chance of seeing them. But mm -hmm. more than likely, American bands, especially punk or hardcore bands, were not touring England. They 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 didn't know how to. I mean, it wasn't really an option. So. Um, I was in the States in the summer of 1986 uh, when the Enjoy album came out. And I got that in in just uh, in like a Sam Goody or something in the mall. Um, I just happened to be there and I had no idea that he'd even come out. Mm -hmm. And so I got it and I was in Florida and the Descendants were either getting ready to play or had just played. And I had just missed him by, you know, like a week or something. Right. And I was like, oh, my God, my one chance, you know, here I am in the summer. And like I missed him. And then a friend of mine met up with me and he was like, oh, yeah, I saw him in Albuquerque and they were great. And, you know, they were farting and they were talking about, you know, this concept of all. And, you know, they kept saying enjoy. And I think the record's going to be enjoy and all that. So I was hearing all of this stuff and I was like, why am I missing? And then I went back to England, um, wrote to the band. Um, a little bit afterwards, um, after the um, All album came out, and I um, I heard back from Bill, and he said, "Yeah, no, we're we're breaking up, and then we're going to be All." And I was like, "Oh, okay, um, that's fine with me. I mean, you know, like Milo's a great singer, and I love him, but I love Dave Smalley too. So if you guys are, it's the th three of you and Dave Smalley. Well, that sounds like a great band too. So, mm -hmm. I, I mean, I didn't miss a beat. And then when I got to the States, it took me, I think until the summer of 89 before I, I actually had seen all, mm -hmm. but um, yeah, they, they immediately became my, my new favorite band mm -hmm. after descendants broke up. Cause I was like, okay, descendants aren't here anymore, but man, all Rice says you cannot beat that album. Yeah, so killer. yeah. So like who were the big bands in Denver at that time? Um at at the time that I moved there the Fluid was like mm -hmm. the big band and and for my money the best band to ever come out of yeah, uh, awesome. Yeah, they were they were absolutely untouchable. Um so they were going and they were huge. Um Dead Silence was going in Boulder and um Dead Silence were incredible. Um I had met a, a group of kids that were doing a band called Keep in Mind. Um, which one of my best friends to to date, uh, the artist Rich Jacobs, Rich played guitar in Keep in Mind, and they were getting a lot of really cool shows. They were smaller shows, but mm -hmm. they were they were going and they were doing some pretty cool stuff. In Boulder, there was another band called Again that were doing some great stuff and um, put out a great great bunch of material um and a lot of the guys that were involved in those bands went on and did you know other really cool things um the warlock pinchers were mm. really big and really popular in denver at the time which and i i never cared for them i mean i i i don't mind admitting that i like they they just seemed like too sticky for me yeah. i mean it was like one part big black five parts beastie boys one part emo nerd and yeah. like that was banned and like i they they had zero appeal for me so but they were one of the biggest bands going at the mm -hmm. time um and you know bum con had finished and um the frantics had been done but you know the fluid had kind of like been born from the the um, ending of the frantics so those were kind of the bands that were happening at the time and um 
And yeah, I mean, the the fluid, getting a chance to see them was just incredible. Every time they played, I went. So your band, Sizewell, that was your main project when you were in Denver? Well, um, when I first moved there, uh, I wasn't doing anything. And then um, pretty shortly after we had been, well, I guess maybe 91, I started doing another band called Pilot Car. And we had recorded a seven inch uh, that we put out. And, um, you know, most all of that band then went on and became Sizewell. So, you know, between Pilot Car and Sizewell, I was doing bands in, in Denver for about, oh, five, six years, something like that. You know, singer in all of those bands. Uh, and I, again, I use that term singer. <laughs> Chemical People's The Right Thing cover, 1990. Seems like that probably opened some doors for you. Oh, man. The Chemical People were were the absolute best. I mean, Dave, Dave 100% opened the door for me for so many different things. Because Dave, as you know, was wildly connected to everyone in the Southern California punk community. Mm-hmm. And because of his his home with Maxine, and I know you know all about the, the fact that they had a, a rehearsal space in the backyard, yeah. um, that was a mecca. And Denver uh, was uh, 1,025 miles to Dave's house. From my house to Dave's house was 1,025 miles. And I went so frequently back and forth driving to Dave's house, you know, to, to go and hang out with him. Every time I did, you know, Dave and I would be sitting in, in his um, living room, just like watching TV and in would walk the muffs. And then I'm getting introduced to, you know, Kim and Ronnie and, and um, whoever was playing with them at the time. Um, And then, you know, in would walk Red Cross and, you know, there were, here's Bill Bartell is staying for a few days. So all of these people kind of came and went and then we'd go out to record stores shopping and everybody knew Dave. And so he'd introduce me and say, oh, this is so-and-so. And, you know, we went to the SST Superstore and, you know, the guy working the counter is Pat Smear and yeah. like all of these people knew Dave and and Dave is the nicest human in the world so everybody had great relationships with him and so dave introduced me to all these people and um i was only too happy to just always throw out hey i do artwork you know if you ever need anything let me know and um and a lot of people took me up on it and so yeah doing stuff for i mean i i've said this before in in different interviews and things but dave nasworthy is the reason i i am known in the punk rock art community. Dave is the reason why. Was it Greg Ginn who asked you to um, do the the artwork for the SST Acoustic Comp? I'm, I'm pretty sure it was. It was, it was, Greg had definitely wanted me to do it. And I think that came through Ron Coleman. Mm-hmm. And so I remember Ron had, had reached out to me and we had talked a lot about it. And, and then while I was out there at one point, it was, Hey, um, Greg wants to meet with you and, you know, kind of just, I don't know, vet me or or whatever it was, but, um, but I wanted to meet Greg too, of course. So I remember we went and we played basketball and then we went over to Alfredo's and it sounds made up, but it's, it's not. (laughs) No, it sounds, it sounds right. (laughs) No, it's 100%. We went to Alfredo's and, um, we met and talked and, you know, I kind of went over, you know, what I what I thought would be kind of cool. And they went over what they were looking for. And, um, you know, and Greg was extremely easy to work with. And um, Ron was just 
a wonderful, wonderful guy to deal with too. But it was all through Dave, you know, through mm-hmm. Dave's connections. Um, you know, he, he had exposed Ron and um, Greg to my artwork and and apparently they really liked it. So they wanted to work with me. And at the time too, I was just going, you got Craig Ibarra. Craig does great stuff. Like, what do you need me for? And, you know, they they wanted to have more people doing it. And I think Craig was, was very... Um, very stretched in in the amount of work that he was doing. Mm-hmm. So I think it was easier just hiring somebody to do it. And the other thing was, and, and I'm sure this really appealed to Greg Ginn, is Greg said, well, we got two things that we could do. We could pay you outright, or if you wanted to just get paid in, in, in merch, we could do that. Mm. And I was like, really? <laughs> and he goes, yeah. So kind of whatever you want from the catalog, we can just give you as payment. Wow. I went, okay. And this is right when like, you know, SST, it's, it's so puzzling because when, when CD, you'll remember that when CDs first got going, SST were great about putting, you know, like four albums worth of material on one CD. Mm-hmm. Yep. You know, like the yep. Minutemen stuff that they did or or some of the Black Flag stuff, they crammed a ton of material onto one CD. And Greg just said, whatever you want, yep. we'll hook you up. And so I got a catalog and I just went through and I just checked off all these things and all these T-shirts and sweatshirts and everything. And I, I mean, I kind of overextended what I thought would be <laughs> acceptable, but I didn't realize for them it was like it was pennies yep. Yep. on the dollar. So it really didn't cost them anything because they just sent the stuff out as, as promo stuff anyway. Yep. So that was how I was paid. And I think because of that, Greg was just like, wow, if we can pay this guy like this, let's get him to do a bunch of stuff. <laughs> I mean, I think that was very appealing. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Okay. This is probably fast forwarding a little bit, but did you get your start with the Descendants by drawing Allroy for the band first? No, because Allroy was dead. Right. You know, yeah, they, I guess so. Yeah. Yeah. Saves. And and yeah. Bill is, as you know, Bill is is very logical about a lot of things so you know when when i started working for the band was during all roy saves and and i was like oh okay well can i can i do these things with all roy or whatever and he just like just deadpan looked at me and he just went chris all roy's dead you killed him on saves and i went he's just he's just a stupid drawing like I'll just redraw him. Like he doesn't have to be dead. And he was like, no, no, he's dead. Like, I don't know how you do that. And so for years there was like this, I want to use him, but he's dead. So how do we bring him back? And and I was not drawing all Roy because as Bill put it, he's dead, Chris. And I was, Hey, well, I guess I won't. So I just started doing, you know, characters in the band. And that's, that's really how I got started. You know, and I, I was I was staying up really really late just going to Denny's drawing and drinking a lot of coffee so I had loads of ideas and and I just throw them at Bill and and whatever he he liked I would just finish up and um and just go with that but for years there wasn't any Allroy in the equation at all it was just me doing designs mainly you know characters of the band mm-hmm. because you know Allroy's dead right who's more fun to draw Milo or Allroy I mean, I love drawing both of them. Yeah. What I love about drawing Milo is it's a much quicker process. With with Milo, it's really about the idea more than maybe the execution. Whereas Allroy, there's more thought put into the execution 
I mean, obviously a lot of idea, you know, goes into it as well, but the execution is slightly more technical, but not wildly technical because um, one of the things that I've always tried to do is honor the the origin of where these characters came from. Mm -hmm. So my drawings of Allroy always are trying to mimic what Carl did in the first place. Right. So I'm always trying to not stray too far from the original template, you know, that was laid out in, in um, Allroy says. And then with Milo, for me, it always goes back to, you know, Milo goes to college like that particular drawing that that um uh rat did that is my template so i always have that in mind so i always make sure there's there's more inconsistencies in milo drawings and less in the all drawings mm -hmm. but it's a very controlled amount of inconsistencies but you you right. you've had the opportunity to get wildly creative especially with milo over the oh, years yeah. yeah yeah well and it's it's funny because like i definitely see milo heads everywhere yeah like i'll be driving and i'll see a jeep and like the grill of the jeep and the placement of the of the the um, lights on it and you know then if there's like you know the little slats that are right before um the windshield i look at that and i just go there's a milo face you know i see it <laughs> everywhere yeah. um and and so i i then you know will very quickly sketch out these ideas because i'm i'm constantly coming up with ideas for oh what do we do with milo now because mm -hmm. i mean there's been hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of them i'm sure you've seen hundreds and hundreds of your specific versions of milo tattooed on people oh yeah 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 <laughs> which is which is really funny because i have zero tattoos i have absolutely nothing <laughs> and, and no desire to have them but it's it's cool i mean like and it never stops being a you know, an honor that, you know, something I drew, somebody liked well enough to, to get a tattoo of. Cause like, that's, that's permanent. Like, yeah. and I, don't, there's very little that I would want to do that would, I would want permanency to. So the fact that people do that is like, whoa, that's cool. Thank you. Oh, I was thinking about it today and it's got to be up there with the bars or like maybe the stones logo for the most tattooed, like band related oh. image. Yeah. Yeah. It really is. I mean, like you've seen the <laughs> meme, like, you know, the, the bars, you know, the Crimson Ghost and Milo is like, is like the aging punkers right, version yeah. of Laugh Love. <laughs> and it's true. Yeah. I mean, it is so ubiquitous. So like the, of the different Milo shirts for the various markets that you've done, do you have a favorite or is there yes. like a fan favorite that people reference to you all the time? There's, there's two that are, are, are some of my favorites of all time. And, and one of them is the one that we did for the first time. The band went to Japan in, I think, 2011, I want to say. Maybe it was 12. Um, you know, it's it's the entire band um, as Japanese kaiju characters. Hmm. You know, so Milo is, of course, Godzilla. And um, Stefan is Rodan. And um, Carl is Jet Jaguar. And Bill is King Kong. So it was so fun for me to make Milo looking versions of them, right. but as monsters, because at the time in particular that, that I had done that shirt, my son was so enamored with Godzilla and Japanese monsters and things like that, that that was as much a drawing for him as it was for the band yeah. so it was a very special one for me to be able to do and um yeah that that one hands down is my favorite and then the other one of course is like the the new york um milo ramones one because mm. it's so stupid and like 
the Ramones are like the best band in the world. So getting to do that was was pretty cool. Are what's like the most sought after one? Is there, is there one that like goes for huge money online or anything like I that? I don't know. I mean, there probably is. Isaac Walter would be the guy to ask, the guy who runs Minor Thread. Mm-hmm. Um, Isaac has his finger on the pulse beat of t-shirt sales. So he would know. And to be really honest, I, I don't ever look at that stuff. So mm-hmm. I don't I don't know what is um, in demand or people are excited about. I don't know. I don't know. I What I really hope is that for any of the t-shirts that are done for the particular show and for the particular venue, that the people of that area feel like they're recognized and that that they're um, being represented well. Yeah. Uh, because there's, I mean, there's sometimes we do shirts that, you know, people look at and they go, I don't get it. And I go, well, you're not supposed to, you don't, you don't live in, in New Zealand. So this shirt is not really for you. But if you do live in New Zealand, I hope that it's something that you feel like they got it. They understood who we are as a people, or there was a nod or a reference made to some punk band from New Zealand that people will will appreciate. Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, I, I just only hope that wherever it is that you, you happen to live, if descendants are coming and there's a shirt that's done for your specific city, that it does honor where you came from. Yeah, I never thought of that, but I suppose the flip side of that is you don't want to offend anybody either, right? No, of course yeah. not. And there have definitely been times where, you know, speaking of Australia, the, the very first time the band had gone in 2010, I was working on a design that, um, you know, had looked like kind of Aboriginal sort of stuff with the dots and everything. And I was told very directly, you cannot do that. Right. And, and I, you know, honestly, at the time, I, all I was thinking of is just like, that's great indigenous art. I mean, that's, I I have an appreciation for that. I love that. I think that would be great. But I was told, no, that that's kind of overstepping a boundary. And so that, that design quickly got nixed, but um, it is, it is kind of a delicate balance because obviously you never want to offend, you know, the the clientele who are coming to that particular show, but instead honoring, you know, where they are and what they do. For sure. Another type of work that you do for bands that I, that I find really interesting is kind of updating classic artwork, like your, you know, but in your style, like the dead milkman, big lizard art or the alternative tentacles bat or no means no's wrong cover, stuff like that. Is that something you enjoy? I like, I feel like you would be drawing cover art anyways whether you were getting commissioned to do it or not yeah i i love it so much because you know for me all of that that early stuff is is why i'm doing what i'm doing now Mm -hmm. so if there is any way that i can re-envision or or kind of put my spin and 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 show my love of whatever the thing is I'm happy to be able to do that. And and people seem to respond to that because the truth of the matter is, is like, if you like No Means No, Wrong is probably your favorite album. Mm-hmm. There's no getting around that. Mm-hmm. You know, it's just like, that's probably going to be your favorite. And it could be debatable, but that is, that is arguably one of the best No Means No records. So if, if that's true, and if you already have a No Means No Wrong shirt, how many times are you going to buy that? Yeah, yeah. You, you buy it once and then you wear it until, you know, it's threadbare. Yeah. But if you have like a slightly different take on that, that that kind of like breathes new life into something that is already special to you, then, I you know, I hope that would be something that would appeal to people. And, and it seems to because, you know, for my money, 
I don't think that good music has an expiration date. Mm-hmm. So there's no reason that it should that it should feel stagnant or stale at any time. So being able to revisit classic logos or things like that and and kind of give them a slight tweak, but you still know exactly what it is. Like to me, that that is a huge challenge. And I'm thinking of that all the time. Mm-hmm. Like I'm looking at bands logos going, how do I like bad religion is the biggest one that I have not yet cracked where I'm going, okay, what if I were just doing the crossbuster, how do I make that work right. and be something new? Yeah. And um, so I'm always thinking of that stuff though. Um, you know, because I love those designs. I mean, some of those things are just so I- iconic. And um, I just like them from a, a graphic sense. And uh, with that in mind, how can I graphically reinterpret it, but still make it very easy to recognize for anybody that loves that band? Yeah, I feel like that Dead Milkman logo is like the one of the greatest unheralded punk band oh, logos of all time. <laughs> undoubtedly, undoubtedly. And, you know, and and for me getting the nod from the band to say, yes, you can do your version of that. And and we want to sell that to to me. That is a huge honor, you know, to be able to have, you know, and I love the dead milkman very dearly. So for them to say, yeah, we like what you did with something that, that we had created. That feels really, really good. And you're right. I mean, that, that, that cow logo is one of the best things ever. (laughs) Um, I was well. You mentioned the Crossbuster. I was going to ask who's kind of your white whale. Like, what's the band that you want to work with that that you haven't checked off your list yet? You know, there's a there's a couple, um, and some of them are going to sound really kind of silly. Um, the Go Go's mm-hmm. that would be one of the ones that's really really high on the list. Um, they might be giants. Oh I yeah, mean, that would be yeah. perfect. Yeah, huge fan of them. I've and, seen you like have drawn like the cover of I think it was Lincoln I saw or maybe yeah, it was Fly. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, and um, I I love them so much, and I I have tried in the past to to reach out to management and and get something going, and I just it it hasn't wound up working yet. So probably they might be giants. Um, the Go Go's obviously you know doing something even though it doesn't make a lot of sense. It would still be an honor to do something for like the sex pistols, mm-hmm. the damned again, I have worked with them, but I, I still want to work with them again. Yeah. Um, stiff little fingers, um, bad religion. I, you know, as, as, as friendly as I am with the band, we've never done anything together. So that would be something more than anything to just go. I'm glad I finally did something for you guys. Yeah. You know, cause they're so great. Do you have a favorite medium? Like I know you work in, with sharpies you paint with acrylics you do mixed media what's your what's your favorite well what what is never really too far for me is the sharpie and it is absolutely my favorite because um you know the sharpie drawings that i do usually are done very very quickly and um they're they're immediate and a lot of the times with the sharpie drawings i i don't use pencil so it's like I, I put the pen down and I hope it's going to turn out okay. And in, in a lot of ways, that's kind of like a challenge for me to like try and get something without making mistakes and no ability to erase. Yeah. It's just like, <laughs> I made this, this is it warts and all. So that's my favorite. And um, it, I use really, really cheap computer paper, just printout paper mm-hmm. um, because the, 
there's very little drag on the Sharpie mm. and the paper itself doesn't have much of a tooth. So it, it just has this nice glide to it. Mm -hmm. It's, uh, it's beautiful. I love the feeling of dragging a Sharpie across a piece of paper. Do you get asked by people at like festivals or shows to like draw you a Milo? Like it's your signature or something? Is oh yeah. I do it all the time. Yeah. yeah all the time. <laughs> and, and I don't, I've really come um, to terms with that. Cause by no means did I create the Milo character or anything. Um, but I put it into comic book terms. So I'm a huge comic book nerd, mm -hmm. just like, our buddy Dave Smalley. And um, I, I kind of look at it and go, okay, Steve Ditko and Jack Kirby created Spider-Man, but Steve Ditko created the look of Spider-Man. That doesn't make John Romita's drawings of Spider-Man any less mm -hmm. or less important. It doesn't mean that what um, Todd McFarlane did with Spider-Man was not one of the most mind-blowing things. And Todd McFarland or John Romita or Steve Ditko would have been happy to draw Spider-Man as being kind of like their signature character. And they left their mark very indelibly on who that character was. So while I didn't create the Milo character, I feel like I've I've worked with him so much that people associate me with that. And, sure. and I'm, I'm very okay with going... Well, I've been kind of like the torchbearer for the Milo character for, you know, 30 years now, and I'm going to keep doing that. And that's, you know, it's what people recognize me first and foremost for. Um, so, yeah, I'm very happy to, you know, if somebody has something and they want me to sign it and do a little Milo on it, I know that that's going to be something that they're happy to see. Yeah. And, and again, I, I take that back to comic books and I go, okay, I don't have to be the creator of the thing to know that Walter Simonson's thing drawing is one of the best things in the world. Mm -hmm. So he can draw them and that's fine. Well, it's like any band logo too, though, right? Like the person who designed the Judas Priest logo isn't the guy that's still doing it today on their covers, right? So it's kind of the same thing, I think. Yeah. I mean, but it's funny because like artists, you know, we all have this sense of pride and like, well, did I do this? Did I come up with this or whatever? And it's like, yeah, you know, maybe, but who cares? Yeah. Like, I mean, you, you should be glad that somebody knows what you've done, yeah. you know? And I, of course, if you start talking about the descendants and you just go, well, Bill wasn't the original drummer. Yeah. You know, and then yeah. you just go, wait a <laughs> hold on a minute. No, the descendants are all about Bill. Yes, they are 100%. And the band that we know and love, we know Bill has been associated with the entire time. So yeah. Who cares? You well, know, you mentioned you also mentioned Milo goes to college and and Rat's cover art, but even he didn't he didn't create. No, it. Roger came up with it. Yeah, I know, <laughs> and that's so funny because Roger's drawings look radically different than what Rat did. Yeah, <laughs> radically different, and it it's funny because you know, and Bill's great about giving credit where credits due, and he'll always say, you know, Roger is who came up with it, and yes, he one hundred percent did. But the classic look that we know today is from Rat's drawing. Mm -hmm. What Roger had done, I don't know if you've seen some of the really, really early ones, those little misadventures of Milo, um, little cartoon strips that he used to do. But his head was very triangular and his hair was long. Mm. <laughs> you know, it looked radically different. I mean, if you think of like what Fido Dito was, yeah. you know, from, yeah. uh, from the 80s, it looked more like Fido Dito. Mm. I mean, it really looked a lot like, and that of course predated that particular weird character. But um, yeah, what uh, what Roger did in spirit, 
Rat took and and created the template for what we then know. And, you know, if you look at it from that start, you know, that's the first time that we see the Milo character in in like a release. But then the next time around, you know, it's 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 Carducci who's doing the drawing right. yep. throw up. I mean, it it wasn't rat, you know, <laughs> and so the Milo baby character looks radically different than the Milo goes to college one. So, you know, it, there's there's room for play. Uh, your partner, Lori, is also a very talented artist. Do you show your work together? Yes, all the time. Yeah, yeah she's she's more of like the the fine artist and and I'm more of like the the t-shirt artist. And like I know my gravestone will say Chris Sherry t-shirt artist and that's kind of what I want to be known for. Um she does work that is in gallery shows all the time and we do a lot of work together, but truthfully, you know, my gallery of choice is is a concert venue. Mm-hmm. You know, like going and seeing t-shirts that I've done, walking around. I prefer that. You know, I prefer that to the, you know, art galleries. Yeah. Well, I think she slums it in your world from time to time too, though. She does. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, she'll she'll do things <laughs> that, like the punk rock and paintbrushes thing. And she's just like, I'm not a punker. I'm just like, you know, this this weirdo who likes to sew and put together these weird stuff. And she's remarkably talented. And I, I mean, the amount of time and effort that she puts into her work far dwarfs what I do. Like, mm-hmm. no question about it. She'll work on a piece for maybe 60 hours, and it's this masterpiece. Wow. And I do a stupid drawing that might take, you know, 30 minutes, and, and people are like, oh, I want to get a tattoo of that. And I'm like, <laughs> yeah, but look at which – I mean, it's kind of like the, the difference between All and Descendants, where you just go, but All are such a great band. Why are you not paying attention yeah. to them? Yeah. <laughs> um, but – she is so incredibly talented. Um, I am her number one fan, and I'm really happy when we can do things together because, truthfully, I don't like doing art shows. Um, mm. They they don't have a whole lot of appeal to me. But when Lori's doing it, I will do it, and I'm happy to do it. How did you end up doing a TED Talk? How did that happen? <laughs> <laughs> that was that was pretty weird. Um, so a friend of mine was a district coordinator in Southern California, Um for getting performers to to do TED Talks. Mm -hmm. And um, he was setting something up in Riverside. And um, he just, he just asked, Hey, do you think you'd want to do this? And, um, you know, I asked, I asked Lori, my wife about it. And I said, do you think I should do this? She, She was like, yes, of course you should. That's like a huge deal. And I was like, is it? I, you know, honestly, <laughs> it's probably best that you didn't know. Maybe <laughs> I had no, I had no idea. And so I, I asked Greg, uh, Greg Artifix is who was putting it on. I asked Greg, um, you know, what, what do you want me to do? I mean, do you want me to talk about being an art teacher? Do you want me to talk about my punk art? What do you want me to talk about? And he goes, well, whatever, you know, you're passionate about, whatever you want to talk about. And I go, well, you know, that doesn't really limit the field for me. I mean, I could talk about anything. And he goes, yeah, we'll talk about what you're passionate about. So I went back and forth and back and forth and back and forth about, do I talk about being an artist? Do I talk about being a teacher? Do I talk about being an artist, being a teacher? And then I realized, well, that's what my talk is about. Mm-hmm. My talk is about being a teacher who also has an art career and how do I balance those two things? Mm-hmm. I mean, the the actual process of trying to figure it out is what led me to what the TED Talk was about. Mm-hmm. And so he invited me down to Riverside and... Um, I, I wrote up this thing and, and had two days to fully memorize it. And then I performed this 18 minute speech 
that I had written meticulously, you know, like only like three days before. Wow. <laughs> I know. It's so stupid. Can't believe I did it. Well, let's talk about your day job, your career as a teacher. It must be super rewarding. Coming from punk rock, you know, we talk a lot as punk rockers or skateboarders or whatever, giving kids who are different, like a place and a voice. But I, I feel like theater and drama clubs don't get the credit that they deserve for also doing that for kids. Oh, 100%. And, um, you know, like I said, I, I had no interest in it in high school myself, but I've, I've kind of created this, um, this safe haven for weirdos in my school. And it's not, don't get me wrong. It's like my drama club and my drama department is not a bunch of weirdos, but it is a place where you can be who you are and people will appreciate you for who you are instead of trying to, you know, beat the weirdo out of you, it's more celebrated. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, I have kids from all walks of life in there. I mean, I have kids that, you know, have virtually nothing and then very affluent kids. I have cheerleaders, football players. Um, I, I have some children that are, are almost non-communicative uh, and they have a home and they have a place where, People accept who they are and and love them for who they are. And I mean, I guess that's easy to do when, you know, the person who's leading, you know, all these people is is very not worried about, you know, how others view him. Right. You know, is is I mean, I'm courageous. I I don't I don't really let much bother me. And I'm I'm certainly marching to the tune of my own drummer. And I think it's easy for kids then to just go, wow, if he can do it. Right. I probably can too. I mean, it's not so hard, yeah. you know. I, I maybe, maybe I lead by example and and give them, um, you know, strength where where maybe they doubt their own strength. Mm -hmm. Maybe. Have you ever talked to Dave Smalley about his uh, background in musical theater? We have. We've yeah. we've talked a little <laughs> bit about that. Um, not not an awful lot, um, but um, but it's funny because Dave. And then Scott Reynolds also has a huge background in musical theater. Mm -hmm. So, you know, both of those first two all singers, that's where they were coming from. Mm -hmm. And so, um, and I think you can hear it way more in, in Scott's work. Um, you know, just the way he crafts a song yeah. is, is very story driven yep. and it's very much supporting an idea that he's, he's, very lyrically telling in an imaginative and amusing way, which is, you know, it's no different than anything from a musical. I mean, it really isn't. Oh, some of his newer stuff there, it's almost like acoustic punk show tunes or something. Oh, 100%. <laughs> but that's his sense. He might hate hearing that. But, uh... no, you know, honestly, I don't think he would. I don't think he would. He knows. Yeah. He knows. <laughs> So how did you get into teaching? Were you like, I want to teach art and you kind of fell into, into theater or how did that happen? So I, I mean, I knew I wanted to be an art teacher right when I graduated from high school, you know, and that then the stupids thing didn't take off, you know, the band kind of fizzled and, and fell apart. So I came back after that winter of 88 um, and I went, well, geez, if the band isn't existing anymore, what am I going to do? And I thought, well, I probably need to go to school. Well, but what do I want to do? And um, the idea of being a teacher just really very much appealed to me. Um, I loved the idea of, of, like you were saying, you know, having that 
that punk background, you know, like if you're really interested in, in promoting change mm -hmm. and you honestly believe that the kids are the future, and if you honestly believe that one person can have a true impact in the world, why don't you put your money where your mouth is and do something about it? You know, it's cool for a lot of bands to be able to do that and sing about that and maybe plant these seeds for people. And, and I was not a singer, so I knew that that really wasn't going to be my avenue. But I thought if, if I could be in a classroom and maybe to help inspire young minds to be able to think for themselves and to do something uh, creatively and, and different, then I feel like I would be really doing my part for society and making the world a better place. I could complain about the world I live in or I could try changing it. And I know it sounds really corny, but I honestly believed that as a teacher, I could initiate change in in a small portion of my world mm -hmm. and perhaps some of the things that i had passed on to my students would would resonate with them and they would take that and that would affect the way they treat others or you know maybe they they go on and they do something that's bigger and better than i could have ever imagined and that's that's the hope so um for me, it just seemed to make a lot of sense. And, and you know, I've embarrassed Kevin Seconds numerous times by telling him that, you know, Kevin and the big boys were very much reasons why I got into teaching. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, when you're hearing somebody singing about, you know, making a change and, and, and you know, wanting the world to be a better place, then being able to, to get into a position where maybe I can do that is important. Um, I owe a lot of that to, you know, people like Kevin Seconds and Dave Smalley and and Tim Kerr and, and you know, Ian Kai. Yeah. I mean, I, and I've told most of them that, too. Yeah. And it's very embarrassing for them, I know, but I don't care. Yeah, you know, it's not corny at all. I mean, now more than ever, especially with the culture going the way it's going and the politics and everything, it's, it's oh, yeah. really important to, you know, just on a street level and to, you know, on an individual one-on-one -on -one basis, however you can to, to foster acceptance and, and creativity. And Oh yeah. Well, I mean, you said it right there. Acceptance I think is one of the biggest things is like, you know, I tell my classes all the time, you do not have to be best friends with everybody in the class, but you have to learn to respect them and get along with them so that you can function. Mm -hmm. You have to do that. And that that's true about society, you know, at a much larger scale when we just go around disrespecting one another and and not not actually valuing other people as human beings that have rights too we've just lost so much mm -hmm. and uh and i i just i really hope that that kids who have been in my class have a sense of that and um and know what that looks like you know because they can look at me and go well here's somebody who who is actually practicing what he preached mm -hmm. you know and I, I feel like you lead by example. For sure. What are some of your favorite productions that you've put on? Oh, geez. Um, you know, we've done a ton of things. I mean, I've been I've been teaching drama stuff now for 21 years. Um, this past year, well, we just finished doing The Diary of Anne Frank, mm -hmm. which in many regards, I think is a very, very important show to be doing particularly at this point in time yeah. where the the rising level of anti-semitism yeah. is shocking to me yeah it's absolutely shocking and granted 
it is a very complicated problem in in Israel right now. I am not saying that you know one side's right, one side's wrong, but I am saying that there is a pervasive anti-Semitic wind that is blowing and is picking up speed, and I think it's wildly dangerous. Yeah. So us doing the Diary of Anne Frank at this point in time, I think, was really uh, it was a it was an important show to do, and that's not you know why we picked it, but. I, I think it was a really important one to do. Um, this past summer, we did the um, musical Legally Blonde, which mm. I thought was remarkably wonderful. And I was thrilled to be a part of that. Um, Little Shop of Horrors, uh, we had done. And that is easily one of my favorite plays in the entire world. Yeah. And um, it was just such a great experience working with the kids and the music that's in that. Um, it's very hard to top for me. Mm-hmm. Do your students know about your your life outside of school? Your do they know you're famous? <laughs> yeah. Am I? Am I famous? I think Holy crap, I'll famous. tell my parents. Um they're starting to have a much better understanding of that. Um, you know, when when COVID happened, I realized, look, I can't just be a teacher anymore. I I have to be able to hook kids on a personal level. And if I can't, I've lost all of them. Yeah. You know, if all I was was a teacher, um, they would have no interest in in listening to anything I had to say. And that was easily one of the most difficult teaching years that I've ever had because just of the apathy that existed. Yeah. And, you know, no one really cared about much of anything. So every day I had to put on, you know, a happy face and and just try the best that I can to connect to the kids and and offer a life preserver to these kids. And in doing that, I became much more open and personal with my own private life. And um, I I think it was helpful to some kids mm-hmm. um, in, in kind of telling more about what I do when I'm not teaching. And, you know, I've always been of the opinion that, look, if you're in high school, you should be probably distrusting of every adult you run across. So <laughs> I'm not trying to buddy up with anybody, but I I do want you to know that, you know, life can be very rich outside of your chosen career that you do. Multifaceted life, for sure, yeah. Yeah, so um, so I started to open up a lot more about what I do, and, you know, the kids kind of started to learn more about that, and then they kind of started to see a little bit more about what I'm doing, and then some kids started to discover it on their own, and I feel like this year in particular, more of my students have a better understanding about what I do and and who I am. And um, it's it, it's weird. Like, for example, we have this thing every year where our seniors get a square to paint, you know, and they leave that there all year. It's like, it's like on the main thoroughfare, you know, it's the senior paint the walk. Mm-hmm. Students did, you know, a Milo goes to college thing. And like, that blew my mind. It was like, Oh my gosh. Wow. <laughs> Worlds are colliding now. And I had a kid that walked in the, like on the first day of school, walks in wearing a bikini kale shirt. And then she comes in and she's wearing, you know, a punk rock museum shirt. Then she's wearing, you know, like a, a joy division shirt. And, and then I start realizing, Oh, she knows who I am and knows the artwork that I do. Mm-hmm. And it was weird. Cause I think she knew about that before signing up for the class. Right. And like, it is weird that kids are starting to know that, but of course you're in high school and you don't want to look like a nerd by going, Hey, Mr. Sherry, tell me yeah. about these. Yeah. So they don't ever do that. Right. 
<laughs> really? And then maybe one on one they'll ask me, but like they don't want to look dorky asking. Yeah. But um, but of course when they graduate and they go to college, you know their roommate has a Milo goes to college tattoo, and they go, "Oh my gosh, that's that stupid character you draw! <laughs> Holy crap, you're somebody!" <laughs> I saw you're headed to Japan next month. I am. Yeah, yeah. The whole family is. Um, mm-hmm. My buddy Isaac Walter, who uh, runs Minor Thread. Uh, had set up a trip to Japan, um, and one of them, a um, a vintage T-shirt uh, slash punk rock store in in Shibuya, Tokyo, is um, sponsoring this trip. And my wife and my son and I are are coming out, and we're doing this pop up show slash um, art event for two weekends um, over Thanksgiving time, wow. which is just incredible to me it's like my artwork is actually bringing me to japan and my family so i i I honestly feel like that was like a moment where i felt like my artwork has done something Mm -hmm. you know it's actually it's bringing us to a country that we've wanted to visit since my wife and i met um the first places we ever wanted to visit together was tokyo and it's taken us you know 25 years but here we are yeah that's awesome congratulations thank you uh, what else are you working on that you want to tell people about? Oh my gosh. I, I'm, I'm always working on stuff and I, I, I have so many things that I need to get finished with. Um, I just got finished doing some artwork for descendants, of course, um, something for punk in the park coming up. I don't know when this podcast will air, but there's a poster that I just did for punk in the park. Uh, I just did a skateboard for descendants and uh hooligan skateboards I just did um, one for Teenage Bottle Rocket and um, Hooligan Skateboards. Uh, I'm talking with the DC band uh, Hammered Hulls about doing some uh, T-shirt artwork. There's there's constantly things that are coming my way that I have to go, okay, do I have time to do this? And because of Japan, I've kind of stopped accepting a lot of work uh, at the moment. But um, there's all, I have a dwarf single cover that I have to do within the next week or so. So there's a lot of stuff. Um, uh, he who cannot be named, the guitar player for the the dwarfs, his solo band. I just did a record cover for. Uh, so there's a bunch of stuff that's kind of in the works. And and like I said, I've I've been kind of uh, ignoring taking on a lot of jobs recently because I I just have to get ready for Japan. Mm-hmm. Where can people go to see your work other than the obvious places like Instagram and um, where can people purchase your art? Well, that's a good question because, um, you know, Instagram is, is kind of like my go-to spot. I, I post pretty much every day. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm, I'm usually working on stuff and I'm, I'm putting out, you know, new stuff all the time. Um, but as far as like purchasing stuff, um, you know, if I've done it through a band, Bifocal Media um, carries a lot of the shirts that I've done as exclusive designs for bands. Um, but, you know, seeing bands on tour is always great going and, and getting their merch because I, I do a lot of stuff for bands to take out on the road with them. But as far as like my my own artwork, um, you know, if people reach out to me on on Instagram, if they direct message me, uh, oftentimes I have, you know, like the originals that, you know, I'm happy to sell that stuff. But I don't have necessarily like a, a go-to spot for that because um, I don't know. I mean, art is a very important facet of my life, but it's not something that I, that I work on the monetary end of all the time. You know, I do get obviously paid for the stuff that I do, 
but um, a lot of times with um, you know the art pieces that I do, in particular the the original drawings, I just hold on to them, and you know I just have stacks of them all over the place. Okay, I saved the hardest question for last. <laughs> Good. And I usually don't ask questions like this, but I, I don't know why I'm asking you this. I thought it'd be fun. You can only have one mixed CD for the rest of your life of five with five Descendants songs and five All songs on it. Oh wow. Boy, yeah, you're right. That is hard. That's a tough one. That would be really difficult to do um, for for one main reason. Um, while Descendants and All have been the bands that I have seen more than anybody else in the world, I don't always know the title mm. because you know, like <laughs> Bikeage, Hope, um, right? <laughs> it has, has nothing, nothing to do with the lyrics. Yeah, with I the hear, lyrical content. Yeah, so that's tricky. That's yeah. a tricky one to do. Yeah. Um, Gosh, I I really don't know. And well, let, let me just kind of like throw out a couple. Sure. And, and maybe these would be on there. Maybe they wouldn't be. Pep Talk would definitely be on there mm. for Descendants. That's um, an interesting one because it is. You know, it's not one of their classics, and it's I I don't know how often they play it. You've seen them probably more than most people. Yes, I yeah. I I believe you're right. I yeah. have. Um, uh, it is not a classic. Um, for years, Bill refused to play it, like straight up refused to play it. Cause I hounded him like literally for decades to play pep talk and no, 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 that's a terrible song, terrible song. And I finally got down to it. I was like, why do you not like playing that? And he goes, cause it was two different songs. It was two different songs that came together and it wasn't just like one thing. So it's kind of, it doesn't really count. Right. I was like, yeah, well, you're saying that as the creator. Mm -hmm. But like as a listener, it's a great song and it it brought me as well as many people through very hard times. Mm -hmm. Being able to hear that, you know, it's not the end of the world since your baby left you. Um, you need to hear that from time to time. And so, I mean, for me, that was a that was a, a nice beacon of light when things were were dark. Mm -hmm. And so Pep Talk's always been one of my favorites. And uh I, I've convinced Bill to start putting into this set now. And so he does, they've been playing it and um, it's, it's great. Of course it sounds wonderful, but so that would probably be on there. Um, maybe, well, maybe, you know, you got to have hope and bikeage. I mean, you got to have those in there. That would be silly to not have those. Um, silly girl would probably be good to put in there. Um, a really weird choice, but maybe Iceman. Mm, yeah. I love it. I love all those Stefan songs in oh, Descendants yeah. and all. Yeah. Um, oh, Myage and Coolidge. I mean, both of those have to be in there. Yeah. They have to be in there. Myage is probably my my favorite Descendant song. No, it is. That's my favorite Descendant song. Yeah. Yes. It was the first Descendant song I ever heard. And um, just from that bass intro, I was hooked. Like, I heard that and went, this is the band for me. Like, I was just... Oh my God. Best, best opening song for an album. I mean, well, I if, I, if I'm remembering right, it's one of the first songs Bill ever wrote. Maybe the first. It I was. Think. Yeah. Yeah. As far as I know, the, the legend has it that, that that was the very first thing that he wrote on a bass guitar that he yeah. found in a, in a garbage can, Yeah, which sounds made up, but you know, that that's the funny thing. Like over the years, I've realized the things that you initially hear that sound made up, are so true with those guys. There is zero pretense yeah. to any of them. 
there's absolutely nothing put on. Yeah. So yeah, that comes, um, that comes across for sure. <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah. I, and I mean, I think that's one of the most beautiful things about them is just warts and all they're, they're putting it all out there. And, um, that's something that I think I've always admired about the band. And, um, even right from the start, you know, um, I remember Bill talking to me about Milo goes to college and, um, he was talking about having done the initial mix of it and playing it to a group of friends and suddenly Gina's dad comes on mm -hmm. and everybody in the room knew what the song was about. Yeah. And just went, oh my God, I can't believe you wrote a song about that. And it was just painfully obvious. And it was just, yeah, it was right there. And and a lot of that, in particular in Bill, um, goes to something that I think is really very interesting about him in, in that he does not enjoy fantasy or or supernatural. So he has zero interest in horror movies and like, science fiction and any of that kind of stuff. He has no interest whatsoever. And I'm like, well, why is that? And he's like, well, it just, as soon as it starts becoming make-believe, it's not real anymore. I have no interest, none. And he writes the exact same way. There's, oh, there's, those songs about his dad will just tear your heart out. Oh my God. Oh, here's one of my favorite things. I know I'm not even answering your question anymore, but this is, <laughs> this is good stuff. Yeah. So, as you may or may not know, um, prior to um, Bill's father's passing, he lived with Stacy, his Bill's wife and him, um, and their kids for for a while, and it was difficult. Yeah. Um, his dad was um, he, he was a, he was a complicated man, and he um, he didn't always um, treat Bill the way that he should have been treated, mm -hmm. and during that time, I think it was, it came out that. Bill had Bill's dad was so unhappy about him being in the band because when he fir first heard, you know, the the bonus e or the fat EP, he heard my dad sucks. Mm. And thought Bill wrote it about him. Uh, Bill didn't even write the song. Yeah. But his dad heard that and just went fine. Mm, then wow. I see where we stand and I'm not going to be as supportive of your band as you might like. Wow. So well, yeah, I, they've know. always been wildly honest. Yeah. But you know, that's the funny thing is that, you know, sometimes with a band like descendants, when everybody writes your singer didn't necessarily write it. So, you know, Milo's singing about my dad sucks. Milo didn't have a difficult relationship with his dad. Yeah. No, Frank and, Frank did, you yeah. know, um, Tony might've, I don't know. Um, Bill had a complicated relationship for sure. But, you know, I think most of us just hear a singer and just assume it always comes from them and it doesn't. Yeah. You know, so anyway, um, yeah. okay, getting back to all. Yeah. Well, hit me, hit me with some all songs. <laughs> oh, stalker has got to be in there. Yeah. Stalker has got to be in there as like one of the top ones. Fool has got to be in there. Yeah. Mary has got to be in there. Um, um uh maybe until i say so yeah maybe until i say so um don quixote or wrong again are great songs too that i don't think get their due yeah i think that's just such a travesty that so many of those amazing songs only get played like once every 
five years or whatever. Oh, 100%. And, you know, I'd love, I'd love, love, love to see more all shows as well. Because, I mean, like I said, you know, as, as soon as Bill had told me that they had a new singer and they were going to be changing their name, uh, they were going to keep doing the same sort of music. I was hooked, you know, um, and I've been with them since day one. I mean, I got an advanced copy of of All Roy Says. I was doing the zine at the time, and I had convinced Bill to send me an advanced copy, and he did, you know. And um, so I've been with those guys since day one, and, um, you know, such an amazing band. Yeah. Such an amazing band. Well, you can hardly blame them, right? They've been doing this for so long, and finally the descendants are, you know getting the recognition they deserve and and to be blunt the paycheck they deserve too and who could who could fault them for prioritizing the descendants but i feel like also absence makes the heart grow fonder i feel like all you know can draw a crowd and and people want to see it way way more of a crowd than they could when they were probably an active band oh yeah well i i would agree with that um you know and and having said that in those early days, I mean, the shows were always packed. Mm-hmm. You know, the the shows that I was going to were always packed. And, you know, at the time when I was living in Denver, um, all were still, you know, in California. And then, of course, they moved out to Missouri. But then they came to, to Colorado because Colorado was so receptive of them. Yeah. I mean, Colorado loved you know, all and descendants. And um, I was just really happy to see that that's, that's where they, they went and had decided to call home. Yeah. Right on. Chris, thanks so much for being on the show today. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. Brent, thank you so much for asking me. This was fun. Yeah. Thank hey, you. And we didn't even talk about summary. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, it's the episode on summary. We kind of and- did. We, we picked some songs that maybe should have been on summary pep talk yeah. and Iceman. <laughs> oh God. Yeah, I was talking to Stefan about that. And I was like, dude, we got to play Iceman. I say we, like, yeah. I'm in the, like, um, you, you got to play Iceman. Like, yeah. Iceman's, and, you know, he was like, Iceman's not bad. And Bill's just like, yeah, Iceman. <laughs> so I I think that's one that they're, um, the the idea of playing, they're they're warming up to a little wow. bit. I would just let's, shit let's myself if, if I saw them play something like that. Well, you know, if nothing else, I think I am um, a, uh, a a tenacious force. <laughs> and and I, I think I've shown that with my artwork over the years that like I don't stop. And like that's the that's the whole all, you know, mentality of For just sure. like, yeah. you know, keeping going. And like I most certainly do that in my life. Like I do not stop. It's just like go, go, go. So if if I get it in my head that I really want to hear Iceman, well, I'm going to bring that up every time I can. And like, I will chip away at them to the point where hopefully it will happen. <laughs> right on, Chris. Thanks so much. Absolutely. Thank you, Brad. I very much appreciate it. Thank you. All right. Awesome. Yeah. Super nice guy. And for those who have been to a, well, at least for me anyways, a Descendants gig in the last 10 years or so, You'll see his artwork on the T-shirts there that are like region specific or bill specific, like like the actual uh, the lineup for the show specific. Yeah, there's one for Vancouver that uh, references the Hanson Brothers, the No Means No Side Project. Oh, nice. Yeah, you're wearing your Descendants hoodie actually, so that's awesome. We'll be yeah. 
that's kind of what we're going to be posting all week for this episode is some of Chris's artwork. Nice. Um, a few things I want to talk about from the interview. We've, I'm sure we've talked about this before, but I don't think Devo gets enough credit for their influence on 80s skate culture. Um, we've heard multiple guests now mention that connection. Uh, if you've never seen that Freedom of Choice video from 1980 that Chris mentions, then do yourself a favor. It's gloriously weird for starters, but it's also got some Dogtown and early Dogtown and Powell skaters in it, including Stacy Peralta, Steve Olson, Tony Alva, Dave Andrecht, Dwayne Peters, and others just shredding the Del Mar skate park. Nice. Pretty sure Pat Howitt mentions that actually in his interview. So many people have. Yeah, it comes up over and over. Yeah. I also actually found this this thing where the super group of Mark Mothersbaugh, Josh Freeze, Jack Black, uh, Tony Hawk and Riley Hawk, his son, and Steve Caballero, they re-recorded that song for uh, Tony Hawk's Pro Skater video game. Have you ever seen this, Ryan? No, no. So there's footage of them recording it on YouTube and, and skating skating around it's on jack black's uh jablinski games youtube channel i think it's like a video game thing like he reviews video games or whatever oh okay but there's there's footage of them recording this in the studio and um jack black mentions that his first ever concert was devo at the santa monica santa monica civic center uh when he was 11 and he says his brother was an assistant engineer on the freedom of choice album so they got tickets and sure enough, I looked it up, and his half-brother, Howard Siegel, who unfortunately passed away at the tragically young age of 31, was an engineer on that album. Wow. Okay, a few other things about the interview. Tom Withers from The Stupids, sending that massive box of records from Toxic mm. Shock wow. back to Chris in England. Like, can you just imagine what a lifeline that would have been back then? Yeah, that's the word that came to my mind, lifeline, and can just imagine dubbing that stuff oh, and then have it and then having everyone else dub it off of me for years right yeah. years yeah oh remember I, when we used to live in that same apartment building together and i would just come down to your apartment and grab stacks of records and take them up to mine and just dub them all yeah, yeah. oh yeah for sure i wonder if chris still has any of those yeah like the tapes that would be amazing yeah uh he mentions <laughs> the band extreme noise terror who are just like this total crust punk band and i'm just picturing them just all this riffraff just hanging around the stairs of the post office in ipswich yeah love it this band that that we talk about a little bit evil knievel rice so there's a seven inch on uh called mr groover's room which i i'm assuming is his history teacher who who let them into his room he talks about uh, this came out in 2015 on Chicago archival label Alona's Dream, uh, mm -hmm. which has released all kinds of cool stuff, ranging from early Chicago hardcore, like Articles of Faith and Trial by Fire, to actually, speaking of the Only Ones, a live Only Ones show from Chicago in 1979. There's a band camp for this label, Alona's Dream, with all kinds of cool stuff, including an unreleased 1989 studio EP by The Stupids featuring the vocals of Chris Sherry. I think it's it's one of the, I think it's actually the only recording that exists of Chris, or at least that's been released of Chris doing vocals for The Stupids. Mm. These are the last recordings of the band. They split up after touring in 1989 with Chris on vocals, although they did reunite in 2008 for a single. Uh, Chris wasn't involved. 
I really only know the Van Stupid record from 1987, I think it is. Every self-respecting skater had it back in the day because the band is all decked out in like skull skates and thrasher gear on the cover. Mm-hmm. They sing about skating in songs like Layback Session. I've never heard or tried to track down some of their other albums, but I, I really should. Chris, uh, Sherry, in the liner notes from this demonstration tape 89 release, calls the follow-up to Van Stupid 1988's Jesus Meets the Stupids their masterpiece. I've actually never heard that. Oh, that time, to correct, time to correct that. Big time. Yeah, we've mentioned that Alona's Dream uh, label on the show before, I think because I was totally pumping that blatant descent mm. uh, comp that they put out, which is the uh, precursor band to Tar. Right. Yeah. Yeah, so also this Evil Knievel Rice EP from 1988 is on Alona's Dream. You can you can and should check it out on the, the band camp. Uh, I'm going to try and score a copy. comes with a zine and a band history. So I definitely want to read that. Unfortunately, it doesn't look like their hip-hop song, The Ricey Boys, is on it. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, This Chemical People show in Fort Worth that he mentions, May 19th, 1989. Uh, Just search Vanilla Ice Chemical People and you'll find the clip on YouTube. There's an interview with Jamie Pena and Ed Ehrlich from the Chems. and then they just rip through a song, and then sure enough, Rob Van Winkle and his posse show up, and they beatbox, including Vanilla Ice doing some beatboxing. Nice. Uh, and he does his thing. It's it's really something. I bet you. Yeah. Did you know the band Libido Boys or Libido Boys from Minnesota? No. Okay, so I got to get my hands on their their two albums. Their album, Hiding Away, as far as I can tell, is actually their first two EPs on one LP. So as far as I can tell. There's just the one full-length, 1991's OPGU on Metal Blade slash Red Decibel. Found some great footage of them on YouTube from 7th Street Entry in 1991. He compares them to All and SNFU, and they're definitely from that school, I would say. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He mentions the band Keep In Mind and their guitarist Rich Jacobs. He's a hell of an artist, too. Look up his work. He did these... Uh, this minor threat family tree. He kind of did them as billboards. Look that up. You've probably seen it. He's done skateboard art. Um, he's shown in some very prestigious galleries. And he also did most of the album art for Iceburn, the band. Ah. Cool, Ryan. We've had now back-to-back Ron Coleman mentions on the show. Chris mm-hmm. mentions them. And Scott Reynolds mentioned Ron as well, uh, which is awesome because he's such a great guy. His TED Talk. You can watch that on YouTube. I did. It's awesome. It's called Balancing Your Career with Your Passion. Just go watch it and then just scroll through the comments. You know, some from current and former students saying things like, one of the most inspirational people in my life, or I wish I, I wish he could be my teacher. We meet, need more teachers and more people in society in general, like Chris Sherry. He's, he's totally going for all and just what a great guy. Let's talk about this record, Ryan. History lesson, part two. So, Brent, in the absence of any sort of spaceman spiel, I've got a a kickoff spiel out of the Flex book. Hmm. A bit of a review on the Somri release. And this will make a lot of sense when you think back to our comments earlier about this comp and how meaningful it was for us anyways, in terms of availability 
of descendants records. So here out of the flex book summary, a best of album that tries to sum up their 1980s career and does a decent job. Not quite sure why you'd want to get this. Either you don't like them, then don't buy their records or you do then buy full albums or better collections like the two things at once CD. If you need an instant descendants mixtape, it's not bad though. And that just goes to like, why would you get summary when you were me? Yeah. Like when we were kids, because you know, the other full length records were not available or you couldn't afford them. This was amazing, amazing bang for your buck back then. Yeah. Let's talk about kind of the packaging, Ryan, like most of these SST anthologies, pretty bare bones. Uh, not like you'd see these days with photos, liner notes, essays, recording notes. Never, I never really knew what the cover was supposed to represent. I always thought of these as like continents coming together to form a planet that's just, a, you know, a solid landmass. Mm. That's what I always thought of when I saw it. Yeah, I thought it was like a uh, like a chemical reaction or bond or something like that you know that makes uh, like more sense a, like a molecule i don't know does it yeah i mean i mean when you look at each of the individual items they do look like kind of continents like little pieces of the earth or something like that you know yeah i'm pretty sure i'm just pulling out my tape here but i'm pretty sure bill drew this art bill stevenson graphics Stefan so who knows either way usually it's um it was Carl if somebody in the band was doing artwork yeah it's interesting though like it looks like it was probably done on some sort of like these days anyways rudimentary computer graphics <laughs> app or yeah. something like that right yeah up until recently you could still get a shirt on uh, the minor thread website with this black a black design on a green shirt or a green design on a black shirt which is actually pretty sharp looking mm -hmm. it does have great detail about all the history and credits on the back which is good though yeah and it and it gives you you know much to my chagrin as a kid when i pick this up you know a list of all the releases that <laughs> i did not did not have you know yeah. <laughs> hey brant since this is basically like our last descendants record before we have them on a comp i went deep into the mojack stacks and wanted to pull out some nugs okay, okay. these are these are like last chance nugs this is it stuff we missed the first 10 times <laughs> kind of well the first one i want to get to actually relates to uh, a spiel from spot since we've uh, mentioned him a number of times on the show here today and this is out of his anti-punk rock book. And there's a spiel in here, a great one, uh, about the Descendants. And he's just kind of going through a number of his landmark recording sessions and mentioning them in this book. And here he talks about the Fat EP, which uh, shows up a number of times on the, on the comp. Here's Spot. The Fat EP was some kind of landmark I can't put a name on. Recorded in Music Labs, Studio B, it was a full steam bonus cup approach with Frank Nevada using my old Fender Strat. And we just went for it. And that's interesting because whenever you see Frank, he's playing that Yamaha guitar. Yep. 
Um, but to know that he played a strat on the fatty P is very interesting. And he's, he's, he's got the, the strap set super short too. Yeah. 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 Precursor to some of those, uh, you know, what would you call it? Emo yeah. or post-rock bands? Yeah. Yeah. Frank Nevada, huge influence. Uh, here's Spot again. I'm pretty sure it was mixed across the street at Studio A where I, the eternal detail dog, had accidentally mixed one tune, fader movements included, whilst monitoring from the two-track machine's playback head. A definite no-no. I didn't say anything until, after hearing the mix back, I explained my mistake by saying, I thought I had done it now when I hadn't done it now. Regardless, it was the mix that went on the record. No one took issue with it. It was also the day when, driving home after the graveyard session, Milo had a morning rush hour accident and was quoted as saying to the attendant policeman, a car is not a toy. <laughs> Okay, so that's that's a spiel from Spot. That's a nug, all right. Yeah. Um, here's one from this uh, fanzine comp, Ripper. Remember this book? From the South Bay to the World, American Hardcore, 1980 to 1983 and beyond. Um, but there is, from their December 1981 issue, a review of the Fat EP. And here's what it said in Ripper. 7-inch, 45 RPM, Five song fat EP, time four minutes and 46 seconds, New Alliance Records. Some food for thought. What could a fast thrashing SoCal band with seemingly no stance or political motivation sing about? In the case of the Descendants, it is irrelevant. Their music should satisfy most Black Flag fans while amusing those with a sense of humor and or an appreciation of honesty with songs about chili cheese dogs, raw fish eyes, and dad. He sucks, according to Frank. The Descendants have an original approach to the hardcore pace. Try and order. It's some of the best fast food around. And this is by Sped McGregor. Hmm. That's the uh, the reviewer from, from Ripper, December 1981. And then here's another from the, uh, the Touch and Go fanzine. Issue number 17, January 1982. And this is also on the Fatty P. I was thinking about that, though. There's, like, a lot of writing about the Fatty P around this era. This really seems to be when, you know, descendants were getting a bit more of notice outside of California. And when you read through the Triple X fanzine book, there's an interview with Milo in there. There's an interview with the band as well of that era, but then a more modern interview with Milo. And Milo really talks about how, like, they did not really leave California until the Grow Up album. So mm -hmm. that's really interesting, right? Um, but here is the touch and go review of the Fat EP uh, for what it's worth. It's a bit out there. Here we go. I bet you these Zanesters have that rare disease where they need to order pizzas under false names at least once a night or else give themselves fresh fruit enemas and cut tropical farts in front of old people eating at the 5 and 10 or else they fish for a living because deep inside the latent need to make great music drives them on into the outer reaches of culinary rock because you see what they do on one does better like make me happy because they play good music you see and my dad sucks is the name of one of their songs 
and they will succeed in turning dining back into eating. I am sure the end. It's just like a total rant hmm. review. So it's hard to tell if it's a positive review or not, but it seems like someone is uh, totally picking up their vibe when reviewing at the time. Mm-hmm. So that's it. There's definitely more out there on the descendants from the Mojack stacks, but I was pretty sure we hadn't touched on those. Way to hit the stacks there. Yeah. Okay, let's cut to the hard part and do the ballot result, and that'll give us a chance to talk about these tracks a little bit. Ballot result. So which ones have we picked before? Okay, so I'll give you the rundown. For the all record, we did Clean Sheets. Good one. For Milo Goes, we did Myage. Good one. For the Grow Up album, we did Good Good Things. Wow. For the Fat EP, we did Mr. Bass, which is not on here. For the Enjoy record, we did Get the Time. For Livage, we did Sour Grapes, which is probably my favorite Descendants song, so I would be pushing hard for it here if we didn't already pick it off of Livage. This is studio version. Yeah. Uh, for Bonus Fat, we did Ride the Wild, which is not on here. For Two Things at Once, we did the song Hope. For Hallraker, we did the live version of Cheer. And then on the Chunks comp, we did Global Probing, which is also not on here. Wow. So we've done a lot of the the amazing ones on here, but there's still some left, hey? Well, for me, I think we've got to pick one of the hits that we haven't picked yet, like Silly Girl, Bikeage, Camage, Coolidge, one of those. I mean, there are other great songs like Van, Kids on Coffee, I'm Not a Loser, but I feel like it should be uh, like one of those. For me, I'm going to throw Bikeage out there when it comes on during the credits on Filmage at the end. Like, it just... It's just so awesome, and it's one that and it's one that um, Chris mentions in the interview. Yeah, I'll go with Bikeage. I almost would have pushed for Suburban Home, though. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. Suburban Home's never been one of my faves. Oh, really? No, I like the the heart on the sleeve breakup songs. Mm. All right, Bikeage it is. Hey, Ryan, thanks to Chris Sherry for being on the show. Yeah, amazing. All right, Ryan, what's next week? Next week, Brandt, it's another. 2LP comp. It's SST 260, The Screaming Trees Anthology. Can't wait. Hey everyone, thanks for listening. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, Tumblr, all at Mojack Pod. We post all kinds of info and tons of pictures of the bands and albums we discuss on the show. Our blog is mojackpod.com. Please check it out for some exclusive content. If you like what we do and want to support the podcast, the best way to do that is to tell your friends about the show. Subscribing, rating, and reviewing on iTunes is also appreciated. We love hearing your opinions, corrections, and feedback, so feel free to post on our social media sites and send us an email to mojackpod at gmail.com. Thanks again for all the support, and we hope to see you next week.